This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Branson Art Gallery. The Branson Art Gallery. Our business is art. Among other things. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. Happy New Year, everybody. It's the first episode back in the new year since we got back from our honeymoon and since our wedding. We are officially married. And this weekend, (laughs) we are getting a P.O. box because people have been asking us, where can they send something? It's very sweet of you. Right. We're totally not requesting that. But if you did want to, we'll have an address for you. We'll We'll share it on Twitter, and uh, we'll also share it during the show once we have it. So keep an eye and or ear out for that. But this week on Pod Cemetery, it's Demonic Possession Week with 1973's The Exorcist, finally, <laughs> and 2015's Ava's Possessions. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror Trivia. Give me what you got. This 2001 remake that stars Matthew Lillard prompted Mm -hmm. film critic Roger Ebert to claim the movie was literally too painful to watch. Remake with Matthew Lillard. Trying to think of the movies that Matthew Lillard has been in. You want me to read it again? From 2001? Oh, yeah. Okay, you remembered. 2001. Too painful to watch. Apparently, I've blocked it from my mind. Wing Commander? Like, no, that's not a horror movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What is it? 13 and Ghosts. Oh, 13 and Ghosts. (laughs) Yes. Oh, God, he's right. It is too painful. It's pretty painful, yeah. Uh, Not that Matthew Lillard is bad in it, though. No, he's not. (laughs) No. Kelsey, Hmm. I'll go with the harder one first. Okay. These are both about The Exorcist. Okay. How many Oscars did The Exorcist win in 1974? Multiple choice, two, three, or four? I'll go with three. The answer was two. Damn. Sorry. uh, It won for both Best Sound Mixing, Robert Knudsen and Chris Newman, And Best Adapted Screenplay by William Peter Blatty. It was nominated for 10 awards, though. Interestingly, though, William Peter Blatty adapted his own source material. (laughs) He's both the scriptwriter and the original novelist, so he won an award for adapting himself. (laughs) So that's kind of cool, I guess. That's funny. So, yeah, let's get right into it with The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. I just said, written uh, for the screen and the original novel by William Peter Blatty, starring Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Sydow, meh, <laughs> Max von Sydow, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, and Mercedes McCambridge. I mention Mercedes McCambridge here because she doesn't 
often get a lot of credit, although when talking about this movie, people talk about her. She's the voice of the demon. Famously, she put herself through quite a lot to do the voice of the demon. She would eat raw eggs. She would chain smoke. She would also drink whiskey. She was an alcoholic. (laughs) And so she would keep a priest with her during recordings to like guide her spiritually through the process to prevent her from backsliding back into alcoholism. Um, yeah, she she pretty much tore herself apart for this movie. And originally she did not ask for any credit. She specifically asked not to be credited. Then she changed her mind, but the only way to get credit in the movie was to sue William Friedkin. Not that he wasn't willing to give her the credit. It was some legal thing. So... Now she has credit. but So I just wanted to make sure that she was actually uh, credited. She was a famous actress before this. She was also an Academy Award winner. She won Best Supporting Actress for All the King's Men from 1949. Wow. Uh, she was nominated again in 1956 for Giant. Orson Welles once called her the world's greatest living radio actress. Wow. So there's a reason why they picked her for her voice for this. Mm-hmm. Max von Sydow, also I mentioned earlier, he kind of seems just as old as he is right now. If you've seen, trying to think of what you would know him from lately, if you've seen The Force Unleashed, he is the guy in the very beginning who gives Poe Dameron the portion of the map in the very first I do not remember that. No? Nope. He has that first line about how this is going to change everything. This will begin to make things right. No, nothing? No. (laughs) Anyway, he was only 44 when they made this movie. So they had to put him in makeup as well. And so they would like stretch his skin out, put the makeup on, let it dry, and then release his skin, causing like semi-realistic cracks. Although you watch the movie and you can tell he's wearing makeup, I think. (laughs) Uh, William Friedkin has directed a lot of things. He directed uh, Thin Blue Line, which is a documentary, a crime documentary, which is really good, very famous, actually. Uh, The French Connection, Sorcerer, which has been on my list for a very long time, and I still haven't seen it. It's (laughs) the one where they're trying to drive the nitroglycerin through the the mountain trail or whatever. Anyway, uh, To Live and Die in L.A., he directed the TV version of 12 Angry Men. Ah. I didn't know that. Awesome, because I fucking this first the first way I saw Twelve Angry Men was through that television version, and I absolutely loved it. By the way, that had George C. Scott in it, who plays the role of the detective in the third Exorcist movie. The detective in this movie, that same character. He he reprises the role, doesn't reprise the role. He plays the role for the first time in the, the third movie. Wow. He just recently directed a documentary about an actual exorcist called The Devil and Father Amorth, which we've talked about on I've the show, I want to that. say. That's very recently. But probably most importantly is he directed the movie that we covered in our second episode, Bug. Really? Yep. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. How did we not say that before? We probably did, but it's been over two years. He did bug? He did bug, yes. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. I like that movie. (laughs) William Peter Blatty also has a brief cameo appearance in the movie, so when I'm talking about the people who made the movie and the actors and all that, I'll mention him as well. He is 
a producer on this film, but he's also one of the producers on the film that Ellen Burstyn is making in this movie. <laughs> so he has a brief cameo there. What is The Exorcist about? A 12-year-old girl is possessed by a demon. And <laughs> it's so funny because that's what everyone remembers about it. But actually, <laughs> the majority of the film is actually about her slowly becoming possessed and mm -hmm. how it affects her and her mother. But what everyone remembers is the exorcism part. Yeah, interestingly, <laughs> the exorcist himself, Max von Sydow, doesn't actually show up at the house until like two thirds of the way through the movie. The exorcism itself is only like nine minutes long. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Now you can find the movie pretty much everywhere. It is available with commercials on IMDb TV if you want to watch it that way. Or it's $4 to rent and $13 to buy on iTunes. We own it digitally on iTunes and that's how we watched it. We did watch the extended director's cut. Friedkin himself does say that this is his preferred version. Studio executives encouraged him to make certain cuts, and he went ahead and did so against the wishes of Blatty. And they actually became pretty good friends, but they kind of stopped talking to each other for a while over issues around this movie and the cuts that were being made ultimately when he was asked to recut the movie for the re-release he decided to put those scenes back in because he regretted his decision of cutting those scenes and ultimately he agreed with blatty that they belonged in the movie and so he ended up putting them uh right back in and that was originally called the version you've never seen there's a few other very minor changes for the extended director's cut he had to say about it in one of the documentaries that's on the digital version on iTunes. The extended version is the only one with the special features, and there's tons of them. Mm -hmm. He said the original, the original cut, cut of, the, of Exorcist. the Exorcist. Bill Blatty and I disagreed about. I cut a number of scenes out, more than 12 minutes worth, from the original version of the film. And for years, Blatty was angry about that. And for a long time, he didn't even speak to me. But whenever he did speak to me, he would say, Billy, you've cut the heart and soul out of the movie. And I would say, Bill, you're a sore winner. The movie's out there. It's a success. The success keeps growing. It's the gift that keeps on giving, as far as you're concerned. And you're telling me that I was wrong? And he called me one day, and he said, Bill, would you consider looking at the footage that you cut? I'll look at it with you. We'll look at it on an editing machine at Warner Brothers where they have it stored. And will you just look at it and see if you could restore it and put it into a new version of the film? And I did this as a favor to Bill because I, I love Blatty and I respect him and he gave me the best piece of material I've ever received. I really put it back for him because I feel and felt that I owe him a lot. He wrote this thing, he created it, gave it to me. And as I got older, I become somewhat less arrogant and I felt that he should have the version of the film come out that he wanted. So there are all these versions of it and I now tend to believe with Blatty that the best version, the most complete version is the 2000 version, the version you've never seen. 
That's interesting because I don't know if I've ever seen the original cut. Yeah, I mean, the spider walk isn't in it. Oh, the scene with the two priests talking about why this demon would possess this little girl. And Max von Sydow, Marin says that he thinks it's to make them despair and lose their faith. Uh, that was taken out because the executive thought that was too obvious. Why are they having a conversation about it? <laughs> it's like, well, it kind of punctuates the whole fucking point. So <laughs> we should probably talk about it. Anyway, this is the version that we watched. If you don't want to watch this version, you want to watch the original one, fine. But we'll talk about certain things that you won't have seen. Should people watch The Exorcist, Kelsey? Of course. Yes. Uh, this is another one of those. Yeah. Like, if you haven't seen The Exorcist, you need to see it now. I've said multiple times on the show, so I figure I'd better talk about it in the episode where we actually talk about this. I did watch the version you've never seen. That was the first way I saw it back in 2000 when I was a teenager. I saw it with a bunch of my buddies, and I fell asleep. It was late at night. So there is that. But I was thoroughly bored. Meanwhile, my buddy Bob, who's been on this show in the past, was absolutely terrified because he was raised Catholic and like all this stuff had some significant meaning to him. And I didn't experience any of that. I was just like we said, the good stuff doesn't happen until I, I put heavy quotes around good. Uh, it doesn't happen until two thirds of the movie into the movie. So I can see now why it didn't live up to the hype when I was a teenager, because everyone's like, it's the scariest movie ever. That's really not. I don't think this movie is that scary. I think it's really interesting. though. I think it's creepy, but I don't think it's scary. Right. So I think that's why I was like, oh, this isn't that scary. Again, it's I, like an hour and a half of nothing happening. <laughs> I agree with you. The same thing happened for me. Everyone told me how scary it was. And then I think I finally saw it when I was like 16 or something. Yeah. As a 16 year old, I was just like, fucking really? <laughs> yeah. So if you are watching this for the first time, just know. <laughs> but that does not. This is a patient film. <laughs> but that does not mean it's not a good movie. No, it's, it's fantastic. It's very, you very good. you absolutely see it. It's just, it's not, just scary. not scary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So with that said, you can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 1973's The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. Now I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. Kelsey, like I mentioned in the very beginning, this has a lot of special features and a lot of people have had a lot of things to say about this movie and we are in no way going to cover them all. We're probably going to be talking for a while about this movie, and we're still not even going to scratch the surface of some of the things you can say about it. So just know that. If there's anything that we don't talk about that you would like to share, though, please feel free to message us on Twitter. With that said, Kelsey, what happens in this movie? Can you get us started? Well, we start in northern Iraq 
Yes. Where there, there is an archaeological dig happening. Uh-huh. And I don't know. I guess priests can be archaeologists. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> the character of Marin, Max von Sydow's character, Sydow, fuck, I don't know. Max von Sydow. Is actually based on a real person, loosely, but who was a like a Jesuit priest and an archaeologist. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, you're doing archaeological digs of a religious nature. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, you're right, you're right. This does take place in northern Iraq. Uh, famously, this is one of the things everyone talks about, Friedkin, the only way he could get in is through a British relationship with Iraq because U.S. didn't have one. So he had to hire an all-British crew, and the only way that they would allow them to film there is if they shared their skills. They had to hire local workers, uh, filmmakers from Iraq, and show them not only how they were doing everything, but also how to make fake blood. What they used that for, who knows? <laughs> the ruins are in Hatra in Iraq. They're over 1,400 years old. So what happens in Iraq? So... They find a few little items, and he finds this little medallion. Yeah. And he's like, what's this doing here? And he's like, that can't be from the same time period. And then he keeps looking, and he finds then a little, like, statue of, like, a demon-looking face. Yeah, this is like a little figurine, or at least a piece of one. Now, I had it in my head... But that somehow got into the hands of Reagan. But that didn't happen. No. Although they do find that medallion eventually. Yeah. Um, no. I think it's because he finds it. Like, I was like, oh, so he, she had it. And that's why she gets possessed. So I think what the movie is saying is that their excavation lets Pazuzu loose. And her, across the world playing, on, well, not really across the world, across the ocean, playing with the Ouija board is what allows Pazuzu to connect to her. Okay. It's just these things happened around the same time. I don't think the medallion itself... Okay, so Pazuzu is real. I, I, as real as a demon could be. Uh, he, he is authentic, I guess you could say. From which religion? Ancient Sumerian. He is also known as Fazuzu, also known as the Dark Angel of the Four Winds, also known as the Prince of the Lower Aerial Kingdoms. So he originally comes from Sumerian myth, like I said, but he's also seen in Babylonian and Assyrian mythologies. His, his The whole point, like what he has power over, is the West and Southwest winds, which bring famine and locusts, respectively, depending on the time of year. But he's also seen as a protector of mothers and children, interestingly, <laughs> against other evil spirits. So you you invoke Pazuzu with a medallion, like the one that they find. He also wielded a magical great sword, and he had telepathy. It might be weird to hear that he was invoked as protection against evil spirits. Uh, if he himself was an evil spirit, this is due to Christianity's influence. It had a way during colonial periods of just like coming in and infesting cultures. And this is one of them. And Christianity at the time just could not 
understand or grapple with the idea of like more than one or the Holy Trinity, at least like, like holy and good spirit. So if you were a little evil, you were all evil. And so they had to make, they erased the portion of the Pazuzu myth that made him partially good. And he was just all evil. And he was incorporated as again, Christianity did. It would take, when it colonized areas, it would take parts of their existing mythology and incorporate it into itself to make it easier for people to convert. That's why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Anyway, they made Pazuzu the right hand of Satan. And he supported Satan in trying to overthrow God and was thus cast out of heaven with Satan, with Lucifer. And so he's a fallen angel in Christian myth now. And that's why this is so heavily tied to Catholicism, even though this is, you know, a Sumerian deity of sorts. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. I'll try not to get that deep into this stuff <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see how it goes though so he and this is a weird little scene so he finds all that stuff and he's talking to a guy he works with and telling him he has to leave and they're having some sort of conversation and then all of a sudden like the clock stops yeah and he's like there is something i must do and he has to leave right away and it's like, wait, what just happened? When some people in the church in D.C. are talking about who they can get to perform the exorcism, they talk about Marin, Marin, and how he's in Woodstock. There is like a Jesuit facility called Woodstock. It's not the concert <laughs> location. <laughs> so I think he was doing research of some sort, kind of like a Gandalf. You know, when he just disappears. I guess, but like, it seems because the clock stops and he all of a sudden says, there's something I must do. It's almost like he's being summoned yeah. to take care of the girl, but that and hasn't happened yet. And again until, yeah, uh-huh, you're right. He ends up almost getting run over by like a horse and carriage. He sees a, a man, he sees a dog fight, and then all of a sudden there's this demon statue hanging out in the middle yes. of the sand dunes, and he's like evil against evil. And I'm just like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> he is seeing Pazuzu. Now the question is, did he miss that statue and he's just seeing it for the first time? Is it really there? I don't think it's really there. I think it's just a vision. I think it's a vision. So why but- is it a statue and not the demon? <laughs> That's a little bit unclear, but it, it's so minor. I feel like the beginning is a, just a little disjointed and it just doesn't flow well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, then on to Ellen Burstyn and Reagan. Played by... Yeah. Are you waiting for me to say? Yes. <laughs> Linda Blair. We meet Ellen Burstyn, and she lives in this awesome house. She has a cook. She has a servant. Uh, and She has, like, an assistant. Yes, who basically is also a babysitter. Yeah. Uh, and she ends up hearing things up above her, and she thinks that she has rats. Mm-hmm. She tries to tell the servant that they have rats, and he's just like, no, it's a clean house. She's like, fine, it's a clean house with rats. Uh-huh. So he's like, okay, I'll have to do that. This is Carl. He's the primary servant, and he's going to come up a couple times later. We find out that she is an actress, mm-hmm. and she is doing a movie in Georgetown right now, which is why they're living there. 
it's funny. Like she, she's like, I don't understand why they're even because she's supposed to be a teacher that's protesting them, the military like knocking down a building, and she's like, I don't get why they're doing it, and he's just like, eh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> and this is all a very funny scene, I guess. And while this is happening, there's a group of people that are watching from afar, mm. and one of the people who's watching is Father Karis. Father Karis, played by Jason Miller. Who, this is his first movie role, by the way. He was a stage actor. Didn't he, like, fly out or something crazy just to do the audition? I Maybe, but from what I heard, Friedkin had seen him perform in a play and had, had already decided on somebody else. But then he saw him perform in a play, and what he saw in his acting on stage is, oh, this is... This is a lost Catholic. This, that's the kind of spirit that he's exuding. And so he's like, I need him to play this this priest. We listened to an entire podcast all about the making of The Exorcist. Yeah, the same one, uh, same series from uh, from when we did Jaws as well. They've done a couple of them. They did Psycho, Jaws, and The Exorcist. And we can't seem to remember the facts. Well, it's very dramatized. <laughs> but it's podcast. very interesting. It's very good. <laughs> anyway... That just shows us who she is and what she's doing. And then the next thing- It also introduces us to Burke Dennings, the director. Yes, who is an important part. And then we get to see her walking back to her flat, and we get to hear the awesome music. Tubular Bells. Yes. Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells. And this is the one that is never finished, I believe we were talking about before, where it just- he keeps on making changes to it over and over and over again, and it's really long, and most of the song does not sound like this. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, we hear the theme for the first time. The first of, like, only three or four in the entire movie. That includes the credits. Yes. And she walks by, like, these nuns with these big billowing habits. Yes, because the wind is blowing really strong. She also passes by. She hears a priest talk about losing their faith, don't know if they can do this anymore, and then we see... I think I've lost my faith, Tom. Yeah. Then we see Karis talking to somebody else. She doesn't quite know what's going on. It looks like maybe Karis is counseling the other guy, or maybe Karis is the one who said that line that she overheard. We don't really know right now, but she's seen him twice now, and he keeps appearing in front of her. Well, it's interesting that you say that you can't tell who it is. That That is true. But that famous line, I think I lost my faith, Tom, that comes later. Yeah, he says that in the bar later. So, but his job is, we find out, counseling priests. He's a psychiatrist for priests. Yes. So that would be something a priest would come to him for. Yes, exactly. He says, I feel like a fraud. Yeah. We then get to see more of her interacting with her daughter, and her daughter is just this sweet, perky, oh, perfect 12-year-old. So who wants a gray geld or, or rode on a gray gelding today and desperately wants a horse, you know? Yes. And, and she steals a cookie and then. They, yes, and she wrestles her to wrestle the ground. Her, yeah. Uh-huh. It's really cute. But it's a stark contrast to Karis's life. We get this happy life at home with servants in a large house. And then we cut to Karis and he's headed home on the subway and like this bum. Like, asks him for money, and he's Will like... Will you help an old altar boy? I'm a Catholic. Father, would you help an old altar boy? I'm a Catholic. 
We don't see him give him any money, and I'm like, dude, you're a priest. Yeah, well, no, we it cuts from there. Yeah, it does. We don't see that him. He doesn't just turn and leave. It cuts from there, and he's and he's walking through a pretty bad neighborhood, and he arrives at his mom's tiny little apartment. Yes. What do we learn about him here? We find out that his mother is sick. Yep. She's Greek. Mm-hmm. She listens to the radio. Her leg doesn't work so well. Uh, she refuses to leave. He wants to put her in a, in a nice mm-hmm. place, and she won't go. She calls him Demi, which is short for Damien Karras, because that's his name. Damien, uh-oh. But that's before The Omen yeah. came out. Before that's what we knew that name yeah. was for. <laughs> but so she calls him Demi. She has photos of him up on her walls and stuff. Do you not remember the photos? No, I do not. Uh, where we find out that he's a boxer. That's what he used to do. He used to be a boxer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It comes up later. Okay. But back to Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair. They are down in their basement that has table tennis and it uh-huh. has her own little art project area. Uh-huh. She's, a, she's a, a prolific little artist. Yes. She made something out of clay. Yes. Her mom is talking to her and she sees that there is a Ouija board out. And she says, what have you been doing with this? And she goes, oh, I've just been playing with it. I found it in the closet. I know how to use it. They sit down to play with it. And she says "She says that she's met somebody named Captain Howdy. Mm-hmm. Captain Howdy, that is very nice. <laughs> well, he, she says that because he doesn't respond. I know, I just... um, That line is just etched in your head. Something you should know about me is, uh, I think before I even ever actually saw the movie, or maybe this came out when I was in college, There's, they used to do these 30-second bunny videos. Oh, yes. And the Exorcist one just makes me laugh so hard. Uh-huh. And I just remember like specific lines. I think I've lost my faith, Tom. <laughs> Captain Howdy, that's not very nice. That isn't very nice. <laughs> I just, I love the way they do it. Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should look them up. They're pretty funny. I'll share it on Twitter. <laughs> anyway. Specifically, Reagan wants to show her she knows how to use it. And when Chris, Ellen Burstyn, the mom, wants to put her hands on the planchette, Reagan tells her no. She's like, well, we got to. And she's like, no, I can do it by myself. And it's like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. And Reagan is insisting that when she plays with it, she plays with it on her own. And that Captain Howdy responds. But for some reason, he's not responding when... She asks her questions like, "Is do you think my mom's pretty?" And that's why that's not very nice. <laughs> Here, I'll show you, Captain Howdy. Do you think my mom's pretty, Captain Howdy? Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. Well, maybe sleeping. You think? Also, when they first put it down, the pl- planchette scurries away from her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I guess you really don't want me to do it. She's like, I didn't do that. Captain Howdy did. Yeah. And now, do we assume that that is Pazuzu? Yes. So- Who, by the way, is not named in this movie. He is named in the script and in the book. And then they ultimately name him in the sequel movie. So why does he start out using the Ouija board? Because that's how you connect to the spirit world. And that's what opened Reagan up to being possessed is she invited the spirits in. It's a gateway for those in the spirit world to interact with humans. It's a gateway drug. Yes, it is. 
you know, like weed. <laughs> so they end up talking about Burke Dennings, uh, her director. And Reagan is convinced that her mother and this guy are in love. And when you see what this guy looks like and how he acts, it's like, why would you think your mother would be interested in him? It was the early 70s. He's a powerful director and she's an aging actress. Like Aging actress. Well, okay. Ouch. In the story, she's supposed to be mid to late 30s, but uh, Ellen Burstyn at the time was like 41, 42, something like that. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. She did not look that old. Oh, yeah. No, she looks fantastic. And yet, holy shit, does that mean she really is that old in Requiem? That's how old she – I thought they put makeup on her. They probably did to make her look shitty. It's been a long time since I've seen Requiem. (laughs) Anyway, she explains, I am not interested in him. He comes around a lot because he's lonely Mm -hmm. Uh, and – I don't really know why they felt the need to tell us this. It seems like a stupid conversation. Well, it also explains why Burke comes by later. It explains why he would be allowed to do so. It also hints at an improper relationship that or at least one that Burke is trying to pursue with Reagan. And it's a little bit more explicit in the book. You mean with? No. I mean with Reagan. But Reagan thinks that her mom is in love with him. Yeah, he hasn't done anything yet. But then he shows up and he's alone in the house with her and then suddenly his head is twisted around and he's tossed out a window. So Karis is then at a bar with his superior explaining, you know, I just can't cut it anymore. I wasn't meant for this. People are coming to me asking me questions about faith and I just can't handle it. This is Tom that he's talking to. Think I've lost my faith, Tom. <laughs> I think I've lost my faith, Tom. He doesn't think he's fit to be a psychiatrist of priests, you know, because he's lost his faith. Not that he doesn't think he's a good psychiatrist. The The, the church is the one who sent him to school, and he's really good at that, but this isn't where he should be, he thinks. Uh, meanwhile, it's Reagan's birthday, and, like, her father doesn't care, doesn't call her, doesn't want to talk to her. He's in Rome with his strumpet or whatever it is that she says. Uh, and again, like, how does this add to the story? <laughs> well, it explains why the father's gone. I guess. And why she doesn't tell the father. That's a good point, why she doesn't tell the father. We also get a peek at Chris's anger when somebody is is doing her daughter dirty. She flips out at whoever she can. In this case, it's the operator on the phone who can't get a hold of Reagan's father. And she's just like, string of expletives. Yeah. It's true. And it's frustrating because it makes her seem weak. Oh, yeah. But I think the point is it's supposed to make her seem like... Helpless. Well, yeah. Okay. So she's supposed to seem helpless. Uh, to show how extreme the situation is, but also that she's not going to sit idly by and just take it from people who say, well, you just, well, I guess we'll see. Like, she'll do anything she can to protect her daughter, but she needs to get helpless to turn to the church. Yeah. So, but she wakes up very early uh, the next morning to have to do a scene, and when she wakes up, her daughter is in bed with her, and she's like, what are you doing in here? And she goes, my bed was shaking. I couldn't get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Which we find out later literally happened her bed was literally shaking well yes but that (laughs) but we find out later that her mom thought she was lying 
Which seems like an odd thing to jump to. Like, I would immediately be like, oh, she had a bad dream. Yeah. Or just Why would you be stuff- like, oh, she's lying? I know, but characterizing it as a lie might be a little bit extreme, but kids make things up. I guess. But, I don't know, it just seems like a weird mm-hmm. place to go with that. Anyway. She hears she, the noises she again. She hears the noises again, and she's really frustrated. Ah, I didn't get the rat trap. So she goes up there, and what does she find? She finds untripped rat traps. Yeah, but she still can hear it. She's just looking around, can't find anything, can't find anything, and then... The candle that she's carrying through the attic just bursts into this column of flames and then goes out. In case you were wondering why she had to go upstairs using a candle and not a flashlight, it was for this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's probably no lights up there. It's an old house in Why don't you have a flashlight? Yeah, I don't know. She just took it off of the mantle or whatever. Anyway. I guess it was uh, the 70s. She's scared by that. And then immediately she can't think of it because immediately she's scared by Carl, who pops his head up through the attic entryway. And he's like, see, no rats. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, yeah, no rats. Meanwhile, at the at the church, yeah, there's a desecrated Mary statue. Yeah. And I think the implication is that Reagan did it. That is the implication. Yes. But. They don't ever come back to it. No, but it's it is it ties it back to the church again, something that Pazuzu would want to do, and it gets the church interested. I think you know it it leads to there's that and the detective too, the the murder that we're about to get to and the defilement of the church are related, and that's why the 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 detective ends up talking to Karis in the first place. But we'll get there. The next scene is Reagan being taken to the hospital. Yep. Do we know why she takes her there the first time? Because they're already doing tests and stuff. And they're like, oh, well, the mood swings and the profanity and everything, it's its part of her. She's got a nerve problem. She needs to well, take. Well, the mom didn't know about the profanity yet at that, this point. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, I that's think it's just the- she's been acting weird and maybe she just needed a checkup. It's like the first step. Nothing really major. It's just like, hey, maybe we should stop by the doctor and give you a checkup. You know? But they don't tell us why. You're right. They don't tell us what she did. And I was getting to that. He, she's like, what do you mean profanity? My daughter doesn't curse. And so I'm saying, like, that clearly didn't happen before this. So what happened that she needed to be taken to the hospital? Yeah. Well, he, the doctor says it's a disorder of the nerves. She has ADD. Is basically what he's saying, but that wasn't a thing at the time. And he prescribes her Ritalin, which was a thing at the time. And it's like, it's a stimulant. And this is where Chris says, well, a stimulant, the problem is, is that she's been acting up. And I think that's where we get the answer. So how are you going to give her a stimulant? Well, it's like in these sort of nerve situations or in the case of ADD, it has the opposite effect. If you don't have ADD, it gets you hyperactive. If you do, it calms you down. Exactly. Which is why it's so funny to me that like, People just took Ritalin because they were like, oh, I need to study. And I'm like, yeah. if, you're, if you don't have ADD, it's not going to help you study. <laughs> well, Which you is up. how I found out I had ADD because yeah. I took it in, in college and all of a sudden I could focus. <laughs> well, I think, it's a, I think it's used as a stimulant to keep people awake for people that don't have ADD. Ah. Uh, yeah. Well, I just all of a sudden had the ability uh-huh. to not get distracted. And uh-huh. I was like, this is amazing. Yep. <laughs> and he says, okay, so... Give it two to three weeks, okay? Oh, also when he brings up the 
the cussing, she's like, what are you talking about? So, well, she let loose a string of expletives during the examination. She advised me to keep my fingers away from her goddamn cunt. Have you ever known your daughter to swear? To use obscenities? No, never. Similar to things like her line. It's uncharacteristic for her. I don't understand. She doesn't swear. Well, she let loose quite a string while I was examining her, Mrs. McNeil. Well, I find that hard to believe. What'd she say? Her vocabulary is rather extensive. Well, give me an example. What did, like, like what? Specifically, what did she say? Well, specifically, Mrs. McNeil, uh, she advised me to keep my fingers away from her. Goddamn cunt. Also, though, that ties into the thing later with Burke, why she would respond negatively to somebody touching her. I'd never heard of that part before. Yeah. So it's a, apparently a little more explicit in the book. Oh. Meanwhile, back with Karis. He is in a hospital and he's saying, you should have called me the minute it happened. Who's he saying that to? His uncle. Yeah. Because his his mother is now in an insane asylum She's for in the some neurological reason. wing of a hospital. She's not in an asylum, but it's not great. It's, it's really bad. horrible. Yeah. So they think she has some sort of neurological disorder, and she keeps blaming him for doing this to her. Because he didn't take care of her well enough. Yeah. He didn't have enough money. Well, he, he, wasn't, he didn't, he didn't live it. with her. He didn't even know she was there until she was. Exactly. But she's tied to the bed. He promises to get her out of there. But he won't be able to. No. The uh, When the uncle says, what are you going to do? Send her to a private hospital? We can't afford a private hospital. And we see him go to the gym and, and the punch a punching bag. And the uncle blames him as well. And he's like, if you hadn't been a priest, you'd be some hotshot psychiatrist and you'd have all this money. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense because later we find out that the only reason he became a psychiatrist is because he was a priest first. The priest yeah. put mm-hmm. him through school. Yep. So the next part, uh, Burke Dennings is very drunk at the <laughs> party. And he's he's harassing Ellen Burstyn's German servant. He is Swiss. That's what he says when 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 Dennings calls him a Nazi. You Nazi like, bastard. I'm Swiss. <laughs> that, that's Carl. <laughs> it's really funny. Tell me, was it public relations you did for the Gestapo or community relations? Swiss. Yes, of course. You never went bowling with Goebbels either, I suppose, eh? Nazi But eventually he ends up actually assaulting him. Yes. And having to get sent away drunk in a car. Yes. They push him out, basically. Who else is at this party, Kelsey? Another priest. Father Dyer, who, by the way, is William O'Malley. He was an actual priest. He was a teacher at a prep school, a Jesuit high school. Why she hangs out with a priest, I don't know. Well, I think it's a thing in your, in a community that's, you know, the diocese that he might be in charge of. You know, it's it's just a thing. And you have a social gathering and the, the priest may show up, especially since he's actors a pretty young and, one. and directors. Yeah, but it's not just actors and directors. It's like a whole socialite thing. So. Well, anyway, there's a priest there. Yeah, but he's young. He drinks. Like, he's not you know, a prude or anything like that. Although apparently he would tell his students that he was in a, like a pornographic 
demon movie or something like that. <laughs> if he didn't approve of it, why is he in it? Well, he he would say it like dismissively, like offhandedly, like that's how he would refer to it. When talking to Father Dyer, Chris asks about Father Karras, this person she keeps seeing. She also feels strange. <laughs> well, she keeps seeing him. Who's like, this guy I Yeah, see. there's this man. I, I keep seeing him on campus. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's Father Karras. And he tells her that his mother recently passed away, that she was living alone and had been dead for days before anyone found her. Which, again, why would you give this information to some random person? Well, it's a shocking sort of thing. And it, it comes up later about how, like, oh, did you know? Right. The fact yeah, that uh -huh. she knows becomes part of the story. But uh -huh. it just seems like a very strange conversation to have in the first place. <laughs> well, it's why maybe he seems so troubled or it's a thing everyone's talking about. Is that why you're asking about him or whatever? She's like, no, I didn't. I didn't know. I've just been seeing him a lot lately. Okay. So they're all sitting around a piano and they're singing and they're drunk and having a good time when suddenly Reagan comes downstairs and they're mm -hmm. all like, Oh, we have a visitor. And she looks at some random guy and says, you're going to die up there. You're going to die up there. And then she pees on the carpet. Yep. After which, her mother gives her a bath, and she asks, Mom, what's wrong with me? So obviously she's not in control of her actions. Yeah. Mom says it's nerves, like the doctor said. You take your pills and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. So after she puts Reagan to bed, she's talking to the maid who's cleaning the urine carpet downstairs. <laughs> Is it going to come out? Yeah, I think it will. And then they hear Reagan screaming. And so she runs upstairs and she sees the bed shaking violently and she ends up jumping on top of it to, to stop it. Which is why it's so irritating later when her doctor is like, it's just spasms. Right, like, but she like, says, I jumped on that bed. It was moving. Right, but she still goes along with what the doctors well, because, say. Because what else is she going to do? And I think uh, that's what they that's what they point out. Well, she tells him, no, 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 it was moving. And he's like, no, 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 it wasn't. Like, what else are you going to do? I would not let them do what she did to her daughter if I had right. been there and the bed had been shaking. I'd be like, fuck you it has nothing to do with her goddamn nerves something is <laughs> happening come and fix the bed but, but she's starting to doubt herself because what's the other explanation possession she doesn't believe in that shit so she starts to doubt herself back to karis who is being told by another priest that this is dire again i think uh being told that there was nothing you could do for your mother mm -hmm. that's the way it is leave it alone and so he has these horrible dreams about his mother and he sees the demon face, which I have done a pumpkin carving of. Yes, you have. Uh, yeah, he sees he sees his mom come up out of the subway and then go back in. He's across the street and calling to her, but she's not responding. He sees that the demon face, like you say. He also sees the medallion falling through the air. He doesn't understand any of it. Mm-hmm. Cut to Reagan screaming, you fucking bastard, at the doctors and like, don't, yeah. I don't want it. Take it away from me. And the mother is like, what is going on? Maybe we need a psychiatrist. And he goes, the problem's not with her. I don't remember, but it's in her brain or something. The problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. <laughs> yeah, he says it's a brain lesion causing hallucinations and seizures. And if it's a lesion, all they need to do is find it and then remove the scar. And so we get this this medical scene. They're, oh, they're, this medical scene is rough. She goes through uh, 
Namoan cephalography. And what this would do is it would drain blood. So they go in through the spine <sighs> and they would drain blood and replace it with air or helium. And then they just do a standard x-ray, just a normal ass x-ray. That's what's happening with that. Oh, my God. And, and they they see if they could find anything and it would show up because of the air or the helium, which is fucking nuts that you would put air. <laughs> it, like, people die that way. Yeah. And it's apparently really painful. And you can definitely see that she does a really good job acting like she's in pain. Looks very painful. Ellen Burstyn does a really good job of reacting empathetically to her daughter. And you hear reports all the time of horror movies that are disturbing or whatever. And people, oh, they fainted in the aisles. They threw up. According to Friedkin, uh, none of it had anything to do with the possession stuff. Where people were responding to fainting and throwing up and all that is in this scene. It's the blood skirting, squirting out and her being in pain. Ellen Burstein was filming another movie and she went to a showing of this and somebody did start to pass out. And so she carried her into the lobby and then had somebody else help her. This may be apocryphal, but she said that she had somebody else help her because she thought it would be too disorienting if she saw that passed out and then woke up and Ellen Burstein was right in front of her. So take that with a grain of salt <laughs> so they uh they do the procedure and they don't find anything there's nothing wrong with her yeah here's the thing about this scene this is fucking nuts and i wanted to make sure we included this one of the people in the scene is paul bateson he's a radiographer by trade and i think it was friedkin who had seen him in an actual medical procedure at some point and wanted to put him in his movie. Paul Bateson has since been convicted of murder and is suspected of being a serial killer. He's in this movie. Oh in that my scene. God. Yeah. Uh-huh. Isn't that creepy? Yes. It's like when you find out that what's his face was on the dating show, mm-hmm. the dating game. <laughs> Jesus. So we get another doctor scene, but this time it's back at home. Symptoms are getting worse, and so the doctor shows up for a house call. Yes. Yeah, the doctor shows back up, and when he comes in, he sees Reagan. Like, flapping up and down on the bed. Oh, yes, going up and down, up and down. And she, they, she apparently hurt her back here and still suffers from that. They try to sedate her, but she ends up hitting them away and, and says in the demon voice, the sow is mine. And she slaps the doctor and tells him to fuck her. <laughs> fuck me. Keep away. The sow is mine. Fuck me. Fuck me. Fuck me. And she has crazy abnormal strength. And when they get outside, he's like, okay, we need to do more testing because obviously something crazy is going on. And she's like, what the fuck? Yeah, there's something else going on. It's not in her fucking brain. And one of the other doctors is like, no, it is. This can be neurologically induced, this this strength. It's like when a mother lifts a car feet off the ground or six inches off the ground or whatever to, to save her baby. We've all heard that, and that's what happens. It's but her they, temporal lobe, and she gets super pissed. But they do more tests. An- another spinal tap and an EEG to look for another lesion. And find again, nothing wrong with her. Nothing. So they say it's time to look for a psychiatrist. It might be 
entirely psychosomatic. So in the next scene, Chris gets home and the lights are flashing and the phone's ringing and she picks up the phone and no one's there. We see a flash of the demon face again. In the hood of the stove. And she gets up to Reagan's room and the windows open again, like the first time when she heard the noises in the attic. The assistant shows up. She's like, what the fuck? No one was home. My daughter's window's open. Where the fuck were you? And the assistant's like, oh, Burke came by and he was watching her while I was going to get her medication. Like She needed the medication, so I went to go get it and, and Burke was watching her. It couldn't have been more than 20 minutes or whatever. Then someone from the production comes by and tells Chris that the hullabaloo she saw outside on her way home. Oh, yeah, I guess you've heard. They say, huh? He's like, I guess you haven't. <laughs> yeah. Burke fell down the steps outside the home. Broke his neck. Broke his neck. And that's kind of all she knows, and the dude just kind of leaves. And while she's sitting there with the assistant, we get the... Spiderwalk scene. Yes. Yeah. So this is a contortionist, Linda Hager. They had a, a harness on her with wires, and then she would do that position, and then they would they would pull her... They would, like, relieve her of whatever weight she needed to where she was just barely touching, and then they would run it down level with the with the angle of the stairs so she could do that walk. That is a real person doing that walk. Oh, um, yeah. When I was a kid, I used to do that all the time. Yeah, but she was supported by a harness, and that's why it was ultimately taken out of the movie is because they couldn't find a good way to make it to where the wires weren't so obvious. So it wasn't until it was re-released that they were able to take that out digitally. And when she gets down at the bottom, all this blood comes out of her mouth. Yeah. So this house in Georgetown is a real place. But in reality, Reagan's room is yards from the stairway, which is like 73 or 74 steps or something like that. Uh, so they needed to build on this fake addition to the house uh -huh. in order to make it seem like her window was right above these steps. <sighs> The reason they chose this house on Prospect Avenue is because William Peter Blatty lived there when he was a student at Georgetown, which I thought was was pretty interesting. Hmm. So it was owned by some older lady. And when they when they built that addition, they had to build windows in certain places because that was her yard where her like bushes and flowers and stuff were and they couldn't let them die so they had to still let the natural sunlight come through i thought that was pretty interesting so they bring in a hypnotherapist and she's got her hand up it's the famous scene reagan is there someone inside you sometimes is there someone inside you sometimes yeah she just has her hand up <laughs> she doesn't say it that way again it's the 30 yeah. second bunnies <laughs> but you know why she has her hand up no because that's Pazuzu. In the statue, one hand up, one hand down. And that's historically how he's depicted. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, I would like to talk to him. And she goes, I don't want you to because I'm afraid. And he's like, come on now, I want to talk to him. Because he thinks that this is like a double personality thing. Right. But he promises her, if you let me talk to him, I can get him to leave. And then a picture falls. Off the mantle, and they're like, oh, that's really weird. And, and then, then she, she starts to growl. She grabs the doctor by the dick. <laughs> and then there's this awesome shot where it's like a harness camera, you know, that they put in front of people. And so the camera smoothly follows him to the ground as he, as he falls because his <laughs> dick is getting crushed. 
<laughs> and then there's a bunch of screaming. And so obviously something bad's going on, but we don't find out how this resolves because we cut to Karis. Running. Running on the track. And I don't think he's a runner in real life. Well, he's a boxer and he's getting old, I guess. But that's also how you have to do it on the East Coast, too, where, you know, you're wearing all sweats. You got the towel wrapped around your neck because it's cold as fuck. <laughs> this is where we meet William F. Kinderman, homicide. He's the homicide detective, and he's the one that uh, is investigating Burke's death. He asks him if the way that the statue of Mary in the church was defiled was witchcraft. And the reason he's talking to Karis is because Karis studied and wrote on the subject of witchcraft. Oh, did he? Yeah. Father, what do you know on the subject of witchcraft? From the witching end, not the hunting. I once did a paper on it. Really? From the psychiatric end. I know, I read it. Then he tells Karis that when Dennings was found, his head was turned completely around, and that wasn't caused by the fall. The fall wouldn't have done that. It would have snapped his neck, not spun it around like that. Is it possible? It's possible. <laughs> so he he reveals to him that he thinks the killer and the desecrator are the same. Uh, maybe it's a sick priest. And Karis is, is like, you know what? I don't know anybody like that. The reason he's coming to Karis again, because he thinks it might be a sick priest, another reason to come to Karis is that Karis is the priest psychiatrist. Yes, but even psychiatrists that are priests are held to that standard. Well, right. especially, doubly so. Yeah, so... Because <laughs> so, you can exactly. confess to his priest and they can't tell so what Kinderman, Kinderman is like, you know, in California, there was a case where a psychiatrist who didn't tell the police something was held liable when, when something bad happened or whatever. And he's like... Is that a threat? Yeah, well, he's like, I'm also a priest. So if he came to me of anything of a spiritual nature, I can't tell you either. And that's not from a psychiatrist angle, you know. So he's like, really, I can't tell you anything. I, I don't know any priest that fits that description, and I wouldn't tell you anyway. And this is when Kinderman invites him to see a movie, and there's a joke about comedians playing serious roles. Let's see Othello, who's in it. I love I love it. He, he, he does this twice in the film. You want to come uh -huh. see a movie with me? What movie? Othello. Who's in it? And like he's getting it irritated because he's like, fuck you. Do you want to go yeah. see a movie or not? And he says Groucho Marx is Othello. And Kara says he's seen it. Yeah. You want to see a film with me? I got passes to the crest. It's Othello. Who's in it? Who's in it? Debbie Reynolds does Demona and Othello Groucho Marx. You happy? I've seen it. Uh... And then Kinderman asks him again if he's seen anyone that's fit that description. And when Karis refuses, he threatens to have him deported. And that's when Karen just like kind of smiles and leaves him. Now, here's the fun thing about Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx used to host a show called You Bet Your Life. You've heard of this? You no. Bet Your Life? There's no. a secret word. You said the secret word. No. If you say the secret word, you get $100 or whatever. And it's like kind of like a, a trivia quiz show. People come on and they answer questions you could win money. So William Peter Blatty was on You Bet Your Life. He was disguised as an Arab prince. 
And ultimately, Groucho called him on it. And he's like, yeah, no, not really. I'm actually a writer. I'm from the Bronx or whatever. And I do this a lot at parties with celebrities and stuff like that. And it goes over really well. So I was pressured to try it on you. And it didn't work on Groucho Marx. And they ended up becoming friends. But here's the important thing. That's why he's referenced in this movie. Here's the important thing. Blatty won the most you could win on that show in the ultimate prize, which was $10,000, which he split with his co-contestant. And when asked what he would do with the money, he said, this is going to fund my next book. Now, what are you going to do with all that money? What are you going to do with your five? Well, I'm going to pay off my bills first. Oh, that's, that's a good way. And you, Bill, what are you going well, to do? Are you going back to Minneapolis? Oh, it's going to finance me to finish the next book. Oh, well, that's wonderful. The next book was The Exorcist. Nice. So that's wrapped back into into this. Nice. Uh, there was one time, apparently, when uh, they were going to invite Groucho Marx on the set to show up instead of Marin. Like, when she answers the door, it's actually Groucho. And the idea was to, like, get everyone, put everyone on ease. At one point, Friedkin was going to bring in a priest to exercise the set. And the priest was like, you think that's going to calm people down? <laughs> So instead, he just blessed the set for the whole cast and crew and made them feel a little bit better. But yeah, anyway, some Groucho Marx stuff. Interesting. Back to Reagan, who now has cuts on her face and is raving. And then we see this committee of doctors. And this is how serious it's getting, that they don't know who it is. And there's some celebrity's daughter is afflicted with some condition and they can't figure it out. And they they end up falling on somnambular possession, which isn't real possession, but it's like a form of sleepwalking. Her brain kind of shuts off. She goes into this sleep state and she hallucinates during that. And that's what's causing her to behave the way that she is. And ultimately, though, because Chris is not standing for this as an explanation, they're pushed to give her their final option. And they suggest... An exorcism, not because they think that she actually needs to be exercised, yes. but they think that it's it's a form of therapy. They ask if they have religious beliefs, and they're like, no. And they say, well, the, an exorcism might be an outside chance. They say it's worked for psychological reasons. If you believe you're possessed, then a belief in exorcism might be the cure. And she's like, you, th- you want me to go get a witch doctor? So when she gets home, the first thing she sees when she gets home is that there is now a cross under her daughter's pillow. Which again pushes her to believe that maybe that is what it is. Actually, it makes her angry. Well, yeah, because she's like, who the fuck did this? Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't like hearing that an exorcism might be the solution. We see the demon face again. Yeah. And this is when the detective comes to talk to her. Yeah, he found a statuette of some sort. I didn't see what it was. Is that the Pazuzu statuette? I think so. At the bottom of the stairs. Exactly what I'm talking about. uh Yeah, this is like physical transmogrification or transportation. Like, we we don't know what's going on here for sure. But while Chris is yelling at the help, because who put this cross under my daughter's pillow, he's searching around. And then he shows up and he and he talks with the mom. He asks... Why Burke would have stayed 20 minutes and then left a sick girl all on her own to fall down the stairs. He thinks that he didn't leave, that he fell out the window. But who pushed him? Had to have been somebody strong. So it couldn't have been Reagan, could it? 
Well, also, at the time, Car- uh, Reagan was heavily sedated, so it seems yeah. very unlikely that it would be her. But he keeps asking questions. Were mm-hmm. there deliveries? Were there visitors? It's obvious that Chris is worried because she knows her daughter has been prone to bouts of extreme strength. They've been talking about this before. Remember the lifting the cars? Mm-hmm. And so she's nervous, but she doesn't say anything. Ultimately, when the detective leaves, he asks for an autograph for his daughter. And when she asks what his daughter's name is, he says, I lied. It's for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says he'll come back when she's feeling better. When he leaves, there's noise coming from upstairs. Reagan starts screaming, and it sounds like she's screaming at another voice that we hear. And so when Chris gets to the room, what does she see? This is the scene where Reagan is being forced to, by Pazuzu, masturbate with the cross, but it is not... Oh, it's violent. Yeah, it's extremely violent, and there's blood all over her. And she's screaming, please stop. And what's he saying? Because I don't like to say He's, what he says. He is saying, let Jesus fuck you. Mm-hmm. And then he grabs Chris's face and then rubs her face in her crotch. And so it comes out all bloody. And it's saying, lick me. Let Jesus fuck you! Let Jesus fuck you! And then hits the mom, and she's thrown across the room. This is where Ellen Burstyn was injured, because William Friedkin was excessive. Mm -hmm. I think he fired a gun next to Jason Miller's ear, and that permanently damaged his hearing uh, in order to get a frightened reaction out of him. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, so... He he would he was known to be abusive to his actors, not like Kubrick or anything, but he would go too far to get the reaction that he wanted, thinking it was just harmless when it really wasn't. He was actually hurting his actors. Now, this is the part when I was like 16. I was so not expecting this. And it just seemed so absurd, this whole scene. This is the part where I burst out laughing. Uh-huh. And my father was not happy. Yeah. My father was, it was very angry. It was very serious at the time. Like, yes. It, it's, it was a huge deal, and it was shocking. And But for me, it was shocking to the point of disbelief. Yeah. It, it was, was too just, much. It was like, this is... This is ridiculous. Yeah. And my father did not like that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We learn more in the book. Apparently, they they describe she breaks her nose. She orgasms at one point during this. It's much more explicit. This is also the famous scene where she spins her head around. Says, do you know what she did? Your cunting daughter? And I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Is he just fucking with her? That's... Burke's voice. Is it? Yeah. Okay, I've never known that. Do you know what she did? Your canting daughter? I never knew that. Yeah, so. The implication is that she did kill Burke. Yes. Okay, so never knew that, and uh, that's cool. (laughs) 
seems like a big part to miss out on. Yeah. They do not make that clear because that voice sounds a lot like the other voice. No, he has a British accent. Ah, it doesn't matter. The only we've seen in this movie so far is Burke. So mom finally ends up approaching Karis and she's wearing sunglasses because she's got a black eye from being slapped and thrown across the room. This is where we find out that the church put Karis through med school. He says he wouldn't turn in a criminal if they came to him for spiritual advice. And Chris asks him how to get an exorcism. And he won't do it. He's just like, that's outlandish. There's no way that your daughter actually needs an exorcism. They don't happen anymore because we discovered what mental health was. (laughs) We found out that the people we were exorcising just had mental disorders (laughs) and they needed real mental help. And we were only hurting them. Like, why would you want to do that? And she's like, no, we've tried all the mental shit. He says he's never met a priest who's ever performed an exorcism. And he explains the church's process. They need they would need proof to be convinced. I'd need permission. But but Chris is desperate. So he agrees to help her. Now, interestingly, he responds to the idea of an exorcism that she brings up. And she's like, how do I get an exorcism? And he's like, yeah, they don't do that anymore. That's the reason why Warner Brothers didn't want to name this movie The Exorcist. Because people wouldn't know what it was. They were worried nobody would have any idea what the fuck that was. Interesting. Yeah. Of course, modern day, yeah. This movie, The Exorcist, led to a surge in the concept of exorcisms. And now, all of a sudden, look at all these possessed people. (laughs) Didn't have anything to do with the fact that it popularized it, right? (laughs) Anyway. He agrees to help her. So he shows up at the house... And he goes up to Reagan's room and she is strapped to the bed. She says she's not Reagan. He I'm introduces the devil. himself. And yeah, she claims she's the devil. He asks, well, if you're the devil, then why don't you just free yourself then? And she says it would be a vulgar display of power. Which, by the way, is where Pantera got one of their album names. A vulgar <laughs> display of power. <laughs> Karis asks to talk to Reagan. And she says in the bum's voice, will you help an old altar boy father? Can you help an old altar boy, father? She also claims that... Your mother's in here with us. Your mother's in here with us, Karis. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. And so he asks her what her maiden name is, and she pukes on him. <laughs> Iconic scene. This is two-thirds of the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. So, that vomit... Do you know what it is? Pea soup. Everybody Do you know knows what pea, pea soup. soup? Campbell's? No. They tried Campbell's and it wasn't good enough. <laughs> it wasn't thick enough. They used Anderson split pea soup. Do you know Anderson's? No. You've never driven past a pea soup Anderson's? No. There's one in Buellton between Santa Barbara and uh, San Luis Obispo. There's one in uh, San Anella near Not Merced. Not that I'm aware of. You see the there are two chefs and they're like hitting each other? Nope. No? Anyway, it didn't have the right effect, so they use Anderson's pea soup. The reaction that you get from Karis is also apparently genuine because she was supposed to just throw up on his chest, but it misfired and it got him in the face. So he's like, ah, and he just wipes it off. That is apparently a real reaction that Jason Miller had. Awesome. So Alan Burstyn uh, goes to clean his shirt. He looks at her drawings Yes. And he explains there are no experts in this field because this is not a field anymore. Uh Uh-huh. 
I recommend that you take your daughter to a hospital for six month observation. And she flips out at him. She yells at him. Yeah. What the fuck do you think I've been doing? <sighs> As he goes to leave, he asks if she knew he was coming. And she says no. He asks if Reagan knew that his mother died recently. She says no. She asks why. And he says it's not important. And he leaves. He gets a recording of her. I don't know why. And it's her recording something for her dad. I think what he ultimately wants to do, and he does, is he wants to compare her pre-possessed to post-possessed and see if he can see if that's just her making voices. So he listens to it and we hear her recording this thing for her dad. And she's very, very happy. And we see him perform communion as well. And he's obviously troubled and distracted. Mm-hmm. And so he's thinking about her. And so he turns up again. Yeah, because there's just something about it that feels real. Yeah. And this is when when she sees him come in the door, she says... An excellent day for an exorcism. Yes. What an excellent day for an exorcism. He's he's come back, and, and she knows he's going to try to exorcise her. She closes the door with her magical powers. Uh-huh. And he says, all right, do it again. In time. Yeah. She speaks in Latin, and so he turns on his recorder... And he tries to talk to her in Latin because, of course, he knows Latin. And so she just responds in French. She says, la plume de matin. Mirabile dictu, don't you agree? You speak Latin. Ego te absolvo. Quad nomen mihi est. Bonjour. Quad nomen mihi est. La plume de matin. Which is the pen of my aunt, which is something you learn when you're learning French, these sort of useless phrases, just so you know how to structure sentences mm-hmm. and, and and phrases and such. What it's doing is it's is it's con- trying to convince him, maybe just toying with him that, oh, this is all fake. She doesn't know Latin. She knows these f- simple phrases that you might learn in school or something like that. And so don't bother trying to exercise her. But I think also it's it's just fucking with him. Mm-hmm. He ends up telling her that he has holy water and throws it on her, and she says it burns. But later we find out that it wasn't holy water, and I've never understood that. She's fucking with him. She knows it's not holy water. Again, the audience and Karis are supposed to be convinced that she's faking it at this point. So this does conflict with theories later about why Karis is important. Why would Pazuzu fuck with him and try to send him away? If Pazuzu wanted him there. But that's why I think ultimately it's just, I'll play your your little game. I'll see how you react. And either way, I get this girl. He ends up having another conversation with Burstyn, and she explains that she thinks her daughter did kill Burke. Yeah. She really does believe that. In the book, they're a little bit more explicit with the fact that maybe Burke did something to her while they were alone in the house. We already know that the possessed Reagan doesn't respond well to fingers near her genitals. Uh, when with the, with the doctor she advised me to keep my fingers away from her. Goddamn cunt. The book's a little bit more explicit with that. Uh, so it could be that Pazuzu who again defends mothers and children got, his immediate reaction was defensive and snapped Burke's neck and threw him out the window. But we don't know that in the movie, but he's, he tells her straight up, you know, the stuff I saw doesn't support a case for possession. 
the holy water, she responded negatively. It was just tap water. Like, so that's where we're revealed that maybe, maybe Karis is going to give up. But he listens to the recording that he did and he takes it to an audio technician at like this language center. And the audio technician is like, oh, that's just English. That's not another language. It's just English in reverse. And when he reverses it, we hear it say, give us time. Let her die. Karis. She also says, I am no one. Yes. Give us time. Let her die. I am no one. I am no one. Fear the priest. Fear the priest. And then he gets a call. I don't understand any of that. I like there's so much of this movie that I've had to just always just be like, don't get it. Oh, well, because it's Uh just like they don't do a lot to try and explain it to the audience. Mm -hmm. I feel like, do you know what that means? Give us time. Let her die. They want to spend more time. They don't want to be exercised. They want to spend more time in the body. But you said that they want to protect her. Yeah. So that's I I agree. (laughs) I agree. I think this his his desire to be in the human world, not in the spirit world, is very strong. And while his instincts may be to protect her from other villainous things, Pazuzu is also villainous. And so when it's him, it's okay. When it's somebody else, no, fuck them. Why say I am no one? I don't know. The next scene we see is he rushes back to the house and the assistant's there, but Chris is not. And she says, I don't want Chris to see this. They go up to the room and it's freezing cold. This is the first time where we can see the breath. And then she moves the sheet and lifts up the shirt or opens up the shirt that Reagan's wearing. And we see words pressed through the skin saying, help me written in scars on her stomach. And supposedly that's one of the real things that happened to the boy. That this is all based on. Yeah. This is supposedly based on a story from the forties, fifties, fifties. And it was a boy. They changed it to a girl. Yeah. Anyway, supposedly that's one of the real things that did happen. So this set had to be refrigerated in order to get the icy breaths. But there's all this equipment and lights and everything like that. So they'd have to do it in cycles because it would it would heat back up again and then you couldn't see their breath again. Meanwhile, Reagan's like tied to the bed. And so like it's just fluctuating back and forth with this heat. And then they'd have to stop for half an hour, an hour or whatever to get it cold again. So it was very, very damaging to the psyche and the physicality of these actors. Apparently, Linda Blair hates the cold now. She can't stand the cold because of that. Karis contacts the church and explains, I I think this is really happening. And so they discuss it and they're like, well, we think that he should do it, but we think he should also have a guide with him, someone who has experience. So let's get Marin because apparently he did an exorcism in Africa that took months and nearly killed him. Yeah. Which we will find out later was of? Pazuzu. Mm-hmm. Which um, I always thought he wanted Marin. I think he wanted to kill Marin. Because Marin was strong in faith. So there's no way he was going to get Marin. But he wanted to kill Marin. But this introduces a question. How long ago was the Iraq thing? Was that before this first one that happened, what, decades ago? A decade ago. 
So is is the Iraq dig 10 years ago? And then immediately after that, he performs the exorcism and now Pazuzu's back again. But how, if not from the dig in Iraq? So that's a little weird. Maybe it wasn't actually Pazuzu and Pazuzu just knows about it. Uh, who knows? We don't know. But so Marin comes. In the famous shot. Yes, the famous shot. So it was the first shot. I think they, they, they shot of the whole entire movie was this shot of him showing up in the fog. It's one of the most famous scenes. It's the one that's on all the covers and everything. It, it makes you hear the Tubular Bells song, even <laughs> though I don't think it's playing here. I don't think so either. But what it is, is it's it's mimicking Magritte paintings. Like, that's what it's supposed to have, that effect, where he's there's the glow and the fog and all of that. So Marin comes inside, and Karis is trying to tell him all about Reagan. And he keeps saying no and interrupts him. And yeah. yeah, go back to the church, get the supplies, get my little thing, you know, the wrap that he puts around his shoulders. I forget what that's called. And so Gar- Karis finally says, don't you want to hear about the background? And Marin just says, why? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd like you to go quickly across the residence, Damien, and gather up a cassock for myself. Two surpluses, a purple stole, and some holy water. And um, your copy of the Roman ritual, the large one. I believe we should begin. Do you want to hear the background of the case first, Father? Why? Why do I need to know about it? Yeah, I'm performing an exorcism here. <laughs> I don't need to know anything. I'd rather not know anything because, he, I mean, he talks to him later that they they lie, but they mix truth with lies. So you need to be prepared for that. But the, So, like, the more information I have, the worse it is, the more they can use against me. If this is just some girl I don't know and a demon then I have more power over it than than the demon has over me. And Karis is like, oh, I think she's manifesting three different personalities. Marin says there is only one. I think it might be helpful if I gave you some background on the different personalities Reagan has manifested. So far, I'd say there seem to be three. She's convinced that There's she's... There's only one. He doesn't know the background. He's never been here before. He hasn't even seen her. There is only one. When they walk in, we see the demon face again. Yeah. They immediately start praying, and so Reagan immediately starts struggling. Yeah, they do the Lord's Prayer, and this is where we get your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. In the face of the enemy. <laughs> Let the enemy have no power over him. And the son of iniquity be powerless to harm him. Your mother sucks cocks in hell, The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us. Karis stops, Marin keeps going, and then they get to the call and response portion of the prayer, and Karis is like, what? He, he's like kind of frozen there. And he's like, Karis, I need you to respond. <laughs> so Karis ends up responding to the prayer. This is the moment when the when the bed floats. And that's why Karis is like frozen. But Marin's, I'm, I'm old hat at this. I've done this before. You just need to keep going, basically. Mm-hmm. Lord, hear my prayer. Father Karis. Father Karras. Damien, the response, please, Damien. Do let my cry come unto thee. As they're doing the call and response and, and Karis is snapped out of it, the bed starts lowering and she starts calming down. And she ends up throwing up again and Marin catches it. It's not projectile this time. He catches it with that sash. And he he cleans it up and hands it to, uh, to Karis to clean the window shutters shake and Marin puts the clean, the washed 
sash back on and he coughs as the demon laughs. (laughs) Because you're weak, you're old, you're frail. I'm going to kill you, basically. Is what the demon uh, knows. So then we get to the the imperative part of the exorcism. You know, like you will do this. You will leave this child. You know, all of that. I stuff. cast you out. Yes. The power of Christ compels you. This is when Reagan's head turns around, and Pazuzu accuses Karis of killing his mother because he left her alone to die. The straps rip off, and she ends up uh, floating on her own without the bed. This is when they do the holy water and the power of Christ this compels is the you. This famous scene. Yeah, the power of Christ compels you. They say it like 14 times or something like that. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. That the power of Christ compels you. 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 Every time the water hits her, it causes cuts and breaks on her skin. Yes. And then she she uh, she slowly lowers back down again. And the statue appears. Well, Karis reties her first, but as he's doing it, she attacks and knocks them both down. And then she struggles that thing where she's got the arms up in the air. And it's backlit too, but it's still iconic. And then we see the statue. Marin sees the statue again. It's the same one he saw in Iraq. Karis wraps her up into a blanket because she's like, you know, struggling against it and she's not violently reacting anymore. And Marin says, we should rest before we start again. And Karis is just totally fucked (laughs) out of his mind. So they sit outside on the balcony upstairs. And this is outside the room. That is, this is a new scene. Apparently. Yeah. They're talking in between exorcisms. And this is when Marin tells him, I think the point is to test your faith. To make us despair. Yep. Why this girl? Doesn't make sense. I think the point is to make us despair. To see ourselves as animal and ugly. To reject the possibility that God could love us. And he goes to the restroom, and Karis just goes right back in without him. And sees his mother. Yeah, we see... Marin taking medicine and shaking, but he's not showing that, or he's trying not to show that to either Karis or Pazuzu. Yeah, Karis wipes her head and she talks as his mother. Why you do this to me? Why you do this to me, Demi? Uh, He checks her heart with a stethoscope and he's concerned. He ends up shouting, you're not my mother! Yeah. Um, She keeps talking as he's like, we got to do something about her heart. Marin asks if we can give her anything, and he's like, it would put her into a coma. We do not want to do that. And as he's trying to explain this to Marin, and she's still going on in his mom's voice, he screams at her, you're not my mother. 
Don't listen. Yeah. So Marin ends up just kicking him out of the room. What is it? Her heart. Can you give her something? She wants a comb. Don't listen. Why, Demi? Demi! Demi, please. Get out. And then he goes on on his own, even though... He wasn't even prepared in the first place to go back in. Karis went in on his own. So downstairs, he's sitting on the chairs and uh, he's sitting on a lounge downstairs, totally out of it, trying to recompose himself. And Chris comes up and asks him if if it's over. No. Is she she going to die? No. And he goes right back up the stairs again. The front doorbell rings and it's the detective. And apparently Marin is dead. <laughs> yes. So Karis goes back into the room and Marin is already dead. Reagan is untied. And as he checks on Marin, she's, she's laughing, giggling. Karis tries to revive him, but he can't. He attacks her and is on top of her and shaking her and, and begging the demon to come into me. Take me. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Come into me. God damn you. Take me. Take me. And we start to hear Reagan, instead of giggling and laughing, she starts crying. And we see flashes of Karis's face being demonic like Reagan's has been this whole entire time. And he moans and he stands up and then he jumps out the window, crashing through the window and tumbling down those same steps. The detective rushes in and sees that Karis is dying at the bottom of the steps and a crowd begins forming and we can hear Reagan crying. Now, the sound of this transition of the spirit leaving Reagan is the sound of pigs being led to slaughter. It's very specific sound. (laughs) Apparently what that is, is Jesus performed exorcisms. And at one point he exercised demons uh, out of body and into pigs, and then they drowned the pigs. And so he's doing the same thing. He's making himself the sacrificial pig, lets the demon come into him, and then kills himself. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have the sound of pigs, is because it's reinterpreting that. And written in spray paint on the wall of the stairwell is fight pigs. Like it's a reference to cops, Mm -hmm. but really it's a reference to these sacrificial pigs that are used to to kill the demons once they've been driven out of a human. Now, there's a weird moment here where somebody is holding him. Uh, Dyer shows up. Father Dyer. When he's holding him, do you notice that his fingers kept curling? Twice, they slowly like... "Mm." Almost like it's the demon alive, biding its time, waiting for you to let me go. So a few things about that. So Dyer tries to give him uh, his last confession. Karis doesn't respond. Crying, Dyer, gives him his last rites. And that's all we get of this. And we assume that Karis dies. Mm -hmm. He doesn't. He comes back. 
in the third movie. And as possessed, when he's possessed, he's played by Brad Dourif. When he's not possessed, (laughs) he's played by Jason Miller. So the same actor came back and played him again. When he becomes like this serial killer, the serial killer is is acted by Brad Dourif. Um, He has a scene with uh, George C. Scott. The detective. So you're telling me that that was meant to indicate that he was alive. I don't think it was meant to indicate he's alive, but I think we can read it that way. Because, again, Pazuzu likes Karis. Not as a person, but as a vessel. He likes the idea of taking a priest. Because he knows, like we know, that Karis's faith is shaken. I think I've lost my faith, Tom. And to corrupt a priest would be, like, the ultimate capture. Be better than taking a little girl who can't defend herself. Getting a priest would be great. Which is why Pazuzu was like, oh, it's an excellent day for an exorcism. Because Pazuzu wants to keep the girl, but if he can take Karis... He would rather take Karis. And that's why he's so willing to jump into Karis's body when Karis is like, I beg you, you know, take me, leave the girl, take me. And yeah, Pazuzu does. Because this whole movie, he's kind of wanted Karis as this, this vulnerable man of God. And normally, you couldn't take a priest. Because they are men of God, they're basically immune to possession. That's what the church believes. But again, Karis is like, I don't think I have my faith anymore. And that makes him vulnerable. There's that line, when an excellent day for an exorcism. exorcism. And Karis responds, you'd You'd like that. And the demon says, intensely. Intensely. Karis says, wouldn't wouldn't that drive drive you out of Reagan? Reagan? And Pazuzu says, it would would bring bring us us together. together. And Karis says, you and Reagan. Reagan. The demon says, you You and us. So I think this was Pazuzu's plan the entire time. Interesting. And that... Leads into the third movie. The second movie has to do with Linda Blair all grown up. And there's this weird sort of like travel into people's minds mechanic with uh You say we've device. seen it, but I don't I remember that at all. I swear we've seen it. I swear we've seen it. <laughs> so anyway, epilogue. Chris and the assistant are packing up the house. The assistant is quitting. <laughs> She's found the medallion in Reagan's room. Chris calls upstairs for Reagan because they have to leave, but we don't see Reagan yet. Dyer is outside. And Chris tells him, I don't think she remembers any of it. And Dyer's like, yeah, that's that's for the best. Just like in Poltergeist. Uh-huh. Reagan comes downstairs, and so Chris introduces him to Father Dyer. Uh, she says she'll call him, and they say goodbye, and they go to drive away, but Chris calls him back and tries to give him the medallion to keep. You, you should keep this. And... Dyer gives it back to her and says, you keep it. And they drive away. He he walks around. He looks at the window. He looks at the stairs, trying to figure out all this that's happened. And then he walks back to the front and he sees the detective. He tells the detective, oh, you just missed him. He says, the girl's good. The detective says that that's good. And the detective offers to take Dyer to the movies. He makes another joke about how it's comedians and a cast in a serious movie Wuthering Heights. Yeah, Wuthering Heights. Dyer says he's seen it. (laughs) And the detective says, he smiles and says another one. And he asks him, have you gotten lunch yet? I got passes. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's the plan? 
Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason, and in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Another one. Had your lunch? No. And then we get the theme playing over the credits. Lightning round stuff, Kelsey? No. For a long time, this was Warner Brothers' highest grossing film adjusted for inflation. This was incredibly popular, especially in the rental scene uh, in the U.S. and Canada. It was behind Sting as the most popular movie of that year. It was also, for the longest time, the highest grossing R-rated movie. Adjusted for inflation, it has made $1.8 billion. Wow. Yeah, which is absolutely insane. It's the success of this movie that pushed Universal to open up Jaws in 500 theaters, which made Jaws the first summer blockbuster. Nice. It is the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Like I said, it was nominated for... 10 Academy Awards, but it only won two of them. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress for Ellen Burstyn, Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, Best Supporting Actress for Linda Blair, uh, Best Director William Friedkin, Best Cinematography Owen Roisman, Best Film Editing, Best Production Design, uh, and it won for Sound Mixing and Adapted Screenplay, like I said before. It was nominated for seven Golden Globes, and it won four of them including Best Picture Drama, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, Best Screenplay, William Peter Blatty. It won all of those that year. This was the year Linda Blair was nominated. She was 12 for Best Supporting Actress, and she would have been the youngest winner to ever win an Academy Award, but that was the very same year she lost to Tatum O'Neill, who actually was the youngest to ever win an Academy Award at 10 years old. For what? Paper Moon? Is that the one she did with her dad? I don't know. Ryan O'Neill? I think that's what it was. Anyway, Jamie Lee Curtis was uh, was a top pick for the producers. The producers wanted her, but Janet Lee wouldn't let her. Why? Well, you know what she thought about this kind of about these kind of movies. Uh, when we saw Night of the Lepus, we talked about how she didn't even want them on the set. That's right. So I thought that was pretty interesting, and it was connected to another movie that we watched. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I know. You bitch. Mm-hmm. No, what, what, do you, what is it? 88. Uh, it's 84, actually. Oh. 84 on Rotten Tomatoes. The Exorcist rides its supernatural theme to magical effect with remarkable special effects in an eerie atmosphere, resulting in one of the scariest films of all time. See, they say that. I just do not think that's It's the a case. great movie. It is. And it is a horror movie, but that does not mean it's scary. No, it's absolutely not. Uh, Metacritic of 81. Do you think that's overrated or underrated? I'd say it's underrated. Absolutely. What would you give it? I'm going to give it a 90. That is exactly what I was going to give it. I think it's a fantastic movie. I think the score, I think the acting, I think the special effects, the cinematography, I think it's great. Yeah. It's real only it's got like two problems, okay? Okay. One is that it's not scary, which was going to be difficult to make this scary, I think. 
but it is creepy. Don't get me wrong. Her voice is creepy. Yeah. Her acting is creepy. Yep. But the second problem is that the part that everyone remembers is not the bulk of the film. Yeah, it's, it's just the end. Like I said, no one nine remembers minutes. Nine all, minutes. No one remembers all of the, the shit of her being in a hospital. The movie is over two hours long and the exorcism is nine minutes. Nobody remembers that. No. And it's not that it's not compelling. It's just not scary. Exactly. That's it. Pauline Kale tore this movie apart. She hated it. She says it's designed to scare people, and it does so by mechanical means. Levitation, swiveling heads, vomit being spewed in people's faces. A viewer can become glumly anesthetized by the brackish color and the senseless ugliness of the conception. Neither the producer-writer William Peter Blatty nor the director William Friedkin shows any feeling for the little girl's helplessness and suffering or for her mother's. Rolling Stone said that it was nothing more than a religious porn film, the gaudiest piece of schlock this side of Cecil B. DeMille, minus that gentleman's wit and ability to tell a story. The New York Times said it was a chunk of elegant occultist claptrap, a practically impossible film to sit through. It establishes a new low for grotesque special effects. Siskel and Ebert each gave it, respectively, four stars. Nice. Which is their highest rating. Uh, I saw somebody was saying that that's weird because Siskel hates a lot of movies. He does. <laughs> and he especially hates it when when directors try to scare the audience by putting little kids in danger. And but for some reason, he really liked he thought this one was an effective one because it's like it cared about her, which is the exact opposite of what Pauline Kale said. So really split in history, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, that is 1973's Exorcist. We did it. Kelsey, that raw recording is two hours long. A lot of pausing. I'm going to guess an hour and 40 minutes. I think I can cut 20 minutes out of this. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Before we move to our next film, Horror Trivia. Who directed the original 1978 version of Halloween? What's, no, Jesus. John Carpenter. Yes. Kelsey the Exorcist again. Okay. This is really easy now. What is the name of the iconic music played in the film? Tubular Bells. I would have known that anyway. That's why I said, yeah, no, you, you definitely know that. This specifically is Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. Ah. All right, moving on to our next film in our Demonic Possession double feature, not a double feature, in our Demonic Possession week is... 2015's Ava's Possessions, written and directed by George Galland, starring Louisa Krauss, Whitney Abel, and Deborah Rush. When I saw this, I wrote down, oh no, written and directed by the same guy, and I've <laughs> never heard of him or anything he's done. Oh, and he's the editor. Uh. Oh no. It was not a good sign. What is Ava's Possessions about? It is about... <laughs> It's the idea that possessions happen, and we accept that they happen, and so there is a possessed anonymous group. Yeah. Uh, the idea is that once you've been possessed, 
it can take you over when it, again whenever it wants to. So you need to learn to fight it. Right. Like basically what happens next at the end of a possession. So it, it fits really well after having yes, just watched the It Exorcist. was great. It was a great watch. And we watched yeah. them back to back. So that was a really fun. It, it was really, really set up for success. And it was a fun concept. And it, like it really won me over in that way. Somebody recommended Ava's possessions to us, Kelsey. Who was that? Well, it was the Chickapedia and the Chickapedia. Uh, actually recommended that we do both these movies together. Oh, yeah. So really, like Kelsey said, we watched them back to back. That was a great combination. It was was. absolutely the best circumstances to watch this movie. Yes. So, yeah, thank you very much, the Chickapedia. The movie is 2 or $3 to rent or $10 to buy. Should people watch Ava's Possessions? I think if you really like possession movies, you will enjoy this. I think it did a lot of fun things. I think if you like these sort of like dark comedy horror yes. movies, like like Tragedy Girls or something like that, I think you'll like this. I enjoyed this one more than Tragedy Girls and and other yeah. f- and other fair like it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's great, but I enjoyed it. My problem generally, not specifically, my problem generally is it had all the ingredients to make me really happy, and I even said to you. Basically, the only way it can drop the ball right now is with what they do in the plot. And to my mind, they really did drop the ball there. And that's what made it really disappointing to me. They had something that was a great idea. And again, if you've never done anything before, (laughs) do not write and direct your own fucking movie. Unless it's just a small little... You know, like you're fucking Kevin Smith or something like that, and you're making a movie for 10 grand. If you're trying to make a big movie, something that you're going to tour to festivals and stuff like that, and apparently this did play at festivals, it's my opinion that doing it yourself should not be your first option. And in this case, I think he should have written the treatment and handed it over to somebody else to write the script. And then he could have directed it. Because I thought it was directed fine. Mm -hmm. It's just the plot halfway through the movie it just loses all the steam provided by the extraordinary premise and initial sort of humor and tone that it had and it just loses all that steam by the end of the movie and you're just like well that that was a bummer i agree you can take our advice or leave it but when we get back we will talk about 2015's ava's possessions i know you're frightened and confused You've been being controlled by an ancient entity. It's gone now. This is a joke, right? This is this is a joke. It's not a joke. I don't remember the night we met. You acted like a mega bitch while you were possessed. And a slut. Which is fine. Hi everybody, my name's Ava. My demon was exercised on Tuesday. It's kind of like AA for people like you. Once you've been possessed, you are ten times more likely to be repossessed. What are you doing Saturday? You summoned the demon. Oh, God. You awoke the darkness. Forces like these. They leave their mark. I don't know whose blood it is, 
Probably your own. First time? Oh no, I've been possessed before. <laughs> Kelsey, yeah. can you get us started on Ava's possessions? What happens? So, we open on a little montage of the exorcism portion. And it, as Chris said, it, it was a great transition because we had just came from the exorcist, uh -huh. where it ends with the exorcism and then the herd coming out of it. And that's what's happening here. Yeah. We hear the priest say, protect this woman's soul. We we see her as the demon look into the mirror and say, hello, gorgeous. Uh-huh. And we, found, we find out that the father's name is Father Marino. Should so that mean something to us? Well, it's spelled like Marin, but with oh, an O at the oh, end. Oh, okay. <laughs> so once she's out of it, Jesus, I can't believe that. Yes. <laughs> so right. <laughs> <laughs> Once she's out of it, she comes out of her bedroom and she finds that her house is just completely destroyed. And her family is there and she's like, did anyone call in sick for me? And they're just like, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, and they, of course, want to blame her. And they're like, are you smoking marijuana? And she's like, are you seriously blaming me for being possessed? Ava, this... Thing that managed to get inside of you should be a real wake-up call. Are you, uh, are you still smoking marijuana? Are you seriously blaming me for getting possessed? I mean, it's a gateway drug, okay? They want her to come and live with them. They're like, you know, you live in a dump, and she's just like, well, it's kind of hard for my place to not look like a dump, considering I was just possessed. Right. We get a, a moment where she meets her attorney, and we know this guy. What do we know him from? Yeah, I mean, we've seen him in a lot of things. Probably the first big thing he was in uh, was Balls of Fury, you know, that, that ping pong comedy where he Never was the main it. character with uh, Christopher Walken and all that. He was also in... A couple episodes of of Hannibal, uh, but everyone and their mother knows him as Jacob from Fantastic Beasts. Yes, yes, the Muggle. Yes, who gets wrapped up in their in what's going on with them, and fall, he falls in love with the, uh, the psychic the one, which yeah. but <laughs> they're not allowed in America to uh -huh. marry Muggles. He's uh, he's all right in this. Yeah, he, he's, like, showing her video of her attacking people, like, while uh -huh. she's possessed. And he's like, so, you've got three options. Yeah, they don't waste any time getting just, like, right into the premise. And I really appreciate that. They're just like, this premise is ridiculous. You just need to accept it right now. Exactly. I like that. And so, he explains, okay, so your parents want to send you off to, like, a commune yeah. type of situation. And basically going for... I, it, a rehab center, right? Yes. Like it, a lot of this movie, the metaphor totally falls apart by the end of the movie, but a lot of this movie is a metaphor for drug addiction and recovering from that addiction. Like I say, though, the metaphor totally falls apart by the end of the movie and it's really unfortunate. But uh, yes, yeah, so one option is go to a rehab center. Option two. Go to jail go for to a jail. very long time. Yes. Or option three, 
join Possessed Anonymous or whatever yeah, like it's called. Spirit Spa, Spirit Possessions Anonymous or something like that. Yeah. Yes. And she's like, well, I guess I'll take option three. Yeah, because you can continue to live your life, but you have to go through the program. She comes home after agreeing to do that, and she sees, like, this little girl in red light, and she's very demonic looking and singing. And uh, what we find out later is it's because in this world, once you've been possessed, just because you've been exercised does not mean that the spirit cannot come back into your body, and that is what it wants to do. So Again, it's just like addiction, right? Like, if you're an alcoholic, you need to stop drinking at all. Mm -hmm. Because you're always an alcoholic. Once you're possessed, you're always open to possession. Exactly. Uh, so she calls in to work saying that she'll come back. And yeah. she finds that her fish are dead. Like this is, it's very, um, it's very realistic. Because they say yeah. that it took a month for the exorcism to work. Uh, just like in The Exorcist, they explain that the first possession that he worked on took a month. So... Over a month of time, a lot of things are going to happen. Not going into work, mm -hmm. not feeding your fish. Like, this is, it's all very realistic. Yeah. Well, like I said before, this is a what's next movie, you know, where most movies end and you're like, okay, well, what now? Right? Like, there's still unresolved things that we need to contend with. Like, and the yes. fact that, for instance, in The Exorcist, she is still a suspect in the murder of Burke Dennings, and they don't even fucking address it. They just forget about that. <laughs> yes, they do. So this movie doesn't. It's like, okay, now you need to reconcile with all the shit that happened. And one of those things that happened is she finds a watch in her apartment uh -huh. and says to Conrad, 30 years of wedded bliss. And she's uh -huh. just like, oh shit, whose is this? What did I do? She also finds a gigantic blood stain on her floor that has been covered Underneath up by her rug. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's like, oh fuck, what did I do? Yeah. And the and the the audience goes along with her. We get to experience her same confusion. Everything we're seeing for the first time, so is she. So I really like that framing device. I think she tries to see her friends, but like a lot of friends don't want to see her because we find out that she became a quote unquote slut. She started sleeping with all of her yeah, friends' don't boyfriends. Slut shame. <laughs> but it wasn't her, it was the possessed her. Yeah. She ends up getting two friends to come over, but while they're there, she hears like this loud pounding sound, and uh -huh. they're just like, Ava. And she starts to act kind of strange, and they're like, See, I knew we shouldn't have come. Right. We find out that her demon. Uh, signals his arrival by the pounding of drums. Do you remember the demon's name? I do not. N I think it's Nafula? Nafula? Something like that. Yeah. Tell us its name. Nafula the Anointed. So she ends up going to her first day at the demon's anonymous thing. Spa. Yeah, and it's funny because somebody says something about their demon. He's like, we don't use the D word. Yeah. She is most concerned about why she was possessed. And they're like, it doesn't matter fucking why. The matter is that it happened and we right. need to deal with that. And she's like, but I want to know what I did because she feels like it must have been her fault that she was possessed. Mm -hmm. They find out how you can be possessed. I mean, she has, I don't know if you'd call him the, her sponsor, but he's the director of the program. Uh, Was Stevens plays Tony. And he tells her that there's three ways that you can get possessed. Uh, it could be random. It could be karmic, or it could be induced by a third party. And like, oh, okay. 
so hers was induced by a third party. Like immediately, I'm like, uh, I, at first I thought it was going to be the boyfriend who we hear a lot about. And then we literally never see the entire movie. No, we do get one moment with her on the phone with him. And yeah. she wants to see him. And he's like, I don't want to see you anymore. Right. That's all we ever get of him. Yeah. Well, he she cheated on him. But not really. Come on now. Yeah. She talks to her sister. And she's like, you know, I must have done something. And her mom, and she's just like, no, you fucking didn't. And she's like, well, mom thinks I did. And she's like, mom has her own issues to deal with. That she thinks have to do with you, but they don't. She has her own issues. And this was a little obvious. The fact that the mother, I mean, spoilers, the mother has been possessed in the yeah, past. Yeah, it's like but a it's genetic thing. But it's way obvious. Like, y- you can be... Possessed if you've been b- born by someone who was possessed. Right. But like the little drops like, oh, who knew our family could be so susceptible to possession? Like it's it's really obvious and I feel like the movie thinks it's being clever. But it's it's not. It's uh, I don't know. Oh, you know, we should probably say um, what the ultimate goal of the spa program is. So while we're there, we meet a few people. We meet possessed twins. That's really funny. Like. It's, that's what ties into the whole genetic thing, you know, where, mm-hmm. oh, well, they're twins and they both got possessed because there is some sort of genetic link there. That feeds into the whole her mom was possessed, now she is thing. Uh, we also meet a young woman who is actually in love with her demon. Yes. What's her name? I do not remember her name, but she explains that they had is a connection. Is that Jillian or is that the sister? I don't remember. Yeah. But anyway, um, this is the the woman who's in love with her demon. And it's that's a fun idea, and I like that a lot. But we also see them performing a sort of ceremony. We see somebody possessed on stage, and everyone's watching. And we find out what's happening is that you can open yourself up to possession again by wearing this medallion. Very similar to what happens in The Exorcist, where... Pazuzu gets summoned with the medallion. Uh, You wear it, you invite the demon back in, and Tony's there the whole time. You're chained up so you can't do anything. He can take off the medallion and you're fine again, but the objective is to get to the point where you can fight it and you take off the medallion. And once you have, you've completed the program. Uh, You're always going to be living with this in your life, but at least now you know you're strong enough to fight it on your own. And that's the whole point. And it's at this point where... You know, we find out that Tony keeps this medallion in his office and that you're nobody's supposed to use it except during this program, which they film, by the way, which is important. I wrote down half this movie feels like waiting to get to the part where she breaks into Tony's office to steal the necklace, uses it for some reason, probably to protect herself mm-hmm. uh, and then takes it off herself. And that's going to be the big climax of the movie. But that's annoying because I like. From this moment, you know that that's where this movie is headed, and you're just waiting for it to get there. <laughs> it's like the movie is trailing behind you. You've already gotten to that point, and you're just, come on, let's get to that point. Every scene feels like I'm waiting for the movie to catch up with me, and that's where it started to go downhill for me. Yes. I love that because they know who their demons are, they can do, like, research on who it is, and she explains yeah. to the group that basically he's an entitled, ar- arrogant, rich kid uh-huh. uh, of hell. That's cute. It was really yeah. fun. In the grand scheme of the 36 legions of hell, he's sort of the uh, entitled, arrogant, rich kid. He likes to come up for joy rides in human bodies. She ends up getting a cake 
and a card from her work saying how much they want her to come back. Well, she does come back. Uh, she's a music producer. And what she finds when she gets back is that some new group that she signed yeah. has developed a song about possession all about her. Yeah, her name is in it, and they call her out specifically. And she flips, and we get the impression for a little bit that this is her letting the demon back in and she attacks the guy, but no... She's just super pissed at this violation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was kind of cool. And so she ends up quitting, basically. Yes. But she's tasked by Tony to basically find out what she did. Just like in a 12-step program, you find out the bad things you did and the people that you hurt, and you go there and you apologize. You know, you, you make amends. Whether or not you can, you try. And so that's her goal in this program it, before she gets to try out the, the necklace. To find out who this Conrad is that left the watch in her apartment. Yeah, uh-huh. What else she's done and apologize to people. So she shows the watch at one of these meetings and somebody's like, oh, this is a such and such watch. They sell them at this shop in Hollywood or whatever. And so she has her first clue. This is a Sherry Share watch. There's a store in Soho. Abaddon the Annihilator shoplifted from there. Hmm. That's my demon's the name. The D word, Hazel. So she calls up this organization and is like, hey, I have this watch. Could you find out who, uh, who owns it and have them get in contact with me? She ends up finding out who it is. She calls them to find out that, oh, he's away on business. Right? Yeah. And they ask her, how did you find the watch? And she explains, oh, I just found it outside of my apartment building. So she goes to this art studio that... Uh, this Ben character runs. He's Conrad's son. And Conrad, like Kelsey said, is away on business. So she, so Ben is dealing with her to get this back. And he calls him Conrad instead of dad. Conrad, you know, it's very richy and, and stuck up or whatever. <laughs> and Ava ends up seeing a painting there that looks like her. But she also sees a painting that she really likes. And... He offers her a painting since she brought the watch back. Yeah, he ends up bringing her back there later to offer her this painting after the place is closed. And so she sees one that she likes and he wraps it up for her and gives it to her. We get a montage of different therapies that they have them do different like crafts and shit. Yeah. Which was funny. It is funny. Yeah. The, the, the different exercises that they go through and yeah, that that's really cute. But ultimately she's becoming more and more friends with Hazel, who is this one that's in love with her demon. And Hazel wants her to perform a ritual to bring the demon back without the necklace. Now, that's a lot more dangerous because 
you don't have the added safety net of removing this medallion in order to banish the demon again. You're just inviting it back in. She ends up going on a really bad date. Yeah. Her <laughs> sister and her sister's, I think, husband. Fiance, yeah. Try to set her up with the fiance, one of the fiance's friends. And it's pretty great. On the date, she's just like, so I was possessed. And I did this, this, and this. How do you feel about that? And he yeah. was just like, uh. And then and in a cut, he disappears. Yes. And that, that that was a little cute. There's something going on with the sister. Sister's really supportive, but fiance is also really supportive as well. And there's one thing that she ends up overhearing while she's taking a nap. And that is that he calls their parents, like mom and dad or whatever. And the sister's like, don't call them mom and dad. Don't do that. You're not part of this family yet. And he's like, well, I think I am, especially after what I did. And we're like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. We get a scene with her mother who's just like, I hope you're not selling your soul to those hippies. <laughs> uh, because she does not believe in the program. No. She wants her to go to this rehab facility. Yes. Yeah, so she's walking down the street at one point, and this pimp attacks her, and... We find out – she's talked to other people, too. We see video of her assaulting a guy at an ATM, and then she talks to him, and he's like, oh, this is – he tells her this is what you were saying in Latin and blah, blah, blah. And But she encounters this pimp who she also apparently did something to. She chewed on his ear or something. Yeah, he's him. got he's got a thing on his ear, and he's like, you chewed on my ear like a rat. Yeah. And he's like, I want my money because apparently she also robbed him. Yes. I guess she – ended up having sex with one of his prostitutes. And so now this is another deeper clue that she can find. She wants to talk to this prostitute. Yes, named Noelle. Yeah. She ends up coming back to talk to Noelle, and Noelle is like, yeah, it was you, me, and this guy. And Well, no, I was having sex with this guy, and then you just got in, and I figured it was a setup. Like, I figured you two were married, and, like, this uh-huh. was part of your kink. But you just started having sex with us. Yeah. And she says, if you could find out anything, let me know. And and Noelle is like, well, I'm not going to do it for free. You're going to have to pay me. <laughs> um, and eventually she will call her saying she has information for her. Mm-hmm. But the pimp shows up again and is like, what did I tell you? I'm going to kill you if you come back here again. Yeah. Meanwhile, the woman who is in love with her demon. Hazel. Asks. Her to do her a favor. Yes. So in lieu of having this medallion that you can put on and take off, there is a ritual you can perform by burning something that used to belong to you as a child. And there's other various things going on. And and this is another thing that becomes really obvious because Ava keeps seeing her stuffed bear everywhere. And then she finds another one that's exactly like it. And it has a drum. So, I mean, like, it's so obvious from the beginning. Right, yeah. That, uh, okay, well, there's the third party. Somebody performed this ritual to get her possessed. Yes. But anyway, she's going to perform this ritual. And it's it's more dangerous than, than the medallion because you can't just take it off. You're just inviting the spirit in. But Hazel's like, no, I love my demon. And he loves me. And for whatever reason, Ava agrees to do this. And she goes to this... What would you call it? Witch shop? 
Well, okay, so, like, at one point, Ava says we could get into a lot of trouble, and the other girl says so, and I just wrote down, well, you could always go to prison. Right. That was always an option exactly. on the table. Exactly. No, so getting in trouble is a big deal, but whatever. But she goes to the shop run by Carol Kane. And all she says is, I need this stuff for this particular spell I'm going to do. And she goes, you know that if you do this, it's going to change you forever. And she's like, it's not, it doesn't matter. I've already been possessed. And she's like, "Uh, okay, whatever. You want to do it? You want to do it. Uh And (laughs) the box moves. And she's like, what was that? And she goes, oh, it's just the frog. It's supposed to be sedated. (laughs) And she goes, well, I hope there's no more surprises. And Carol Kane says, good luck with that. Yeah. The instructions are inside all the Ingredients for the potion, the incantation. Do you need a ceremonial cloak or do you have your own? What's that? Just a frog. It's supposed to be sedated. You need to sacrifice it. I have to sacrifice it? Oh, Jesus. I just hope there are no more surprises. Good luck with that. (laughs) So they go and they perform this ritual... And Hazel gets possessed and uh, almost attacks Ava. But Ava like flatters it, and and she goes and she says something like "Good girl," or yeah, something was that like so that. hard or something like that? Yeah, or you're getting the hang of it. Yeah, and then runs off and jumps so Ava's off the like, building. Yeah, it was like oh shit, <laughs> and she calls the father who performed the exorcist on her and was like, hey, there's this woman. She's possessed. She might come pass by your office just giving you a heads up. You know? <laughs> and yes, eventually Hazel is captured and committed and talks to Ava about it. Run- Ava runs into her. But when, when Ava goes back to the program, Tony sees she has a marking on her neck now. And he's like, oh, my God, did you perform this ritual? This makes you even more susceptible to being possessed. You can't continue on in this program because the whole point of the program is to confront these demons. And now that you're more even more susceptible, like we can't do that anymore. And so he kicks her out of the program. And this is when the guy from Conrad's son shows up again. And this time he has the picture. Because before, she got the phone call and had to leave right away. Uh Uh-huh. So he's like, well, you forgot your picture. She's like, are you stalking me? And he's like, well, you're on her mailing list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was Because that was the first thing that she had to do when she walked in was put her name on the mailing list. Uh And he's just like, well, do you want to talk about whatever it is that's bothering you? No. Do you want me to leave? No. And then they make out. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And the demon is trying to get inside of her. Yeah, it it just keeps coming back. We keep getting these drums. Now, ultimately, she's left with two options now that because she's been kicked out of the program. It's go to jail or go to this rehab facility. And her parents are happy to send her to this rehab facility. But she gets a call from the sex worker, Noelle. and says, I have information. You got to come down here. And she tells her dad, listen, I think I might have information about what happened while I was possessed. I need to talk to this woman. Please help me. And the dad's like, okay, I'll tell your mom you jumped out the window or something like that. And she's like, ah, I need money to pay the sex worker. How much? <laughs> you know, so the dad's really sweet. He really does want what's best for his daughter without, you know, dictating what she does with her life. I thought he's, it's William Sadler. He's a really cool guy. So she goes to 
Noelle's van, and when she gets there, Noelle is dead. Then she gets the, attacked by the by the by the pimp, and he's like, "What the fuck?" And and then, uh, when but then she, she's saved. Well, well, she's like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick your ass, I'm possessed by a demon or whatever. And he's like, "Oh, okay, no, I'll back off, I'll back off." And we find out that Ben's there, and he has a gun drawn on the on the pimp, and. So the pimp runs off. And she's like, are you following me? And he's just like, I just saved your life. But she wants to know why. So she she goes like, oh, what, whatever, I got to get out of here. And she runs off. But she ends up getting caught again by the family. And Roger, her sister's fiance, is like, you guys go on ahead. I'll make sure that she makes it to... The facility tonight and he was very specific with that and I'm like oh he's gonna do something else with her you know it seemed a little bit obvious that oh I'll make sure she gets there tonight well, why aren't you taking her right there like why would you say it that way <laughs> so sure enough he drives her somewhere and then they stop and then he like tries to make out with her mm-hmm. and we, why do you want me so bad Roger and he, and he says that he's in love with her and that he proved his love when he disposed of the body. And this body is Conrad's body. So yes, in fact, she did kill Conrad in her apartment and the family found out about it and her mom, her dad, her sister, and her future brother-in-law disposed of this body, cut it all up and got rid of it. And that's the thing that Roger was talking about that he did that basically makes him a family member now. But another thing they did is... She followed him to Noel when she was possessed because he's been sleeping with sex workers and she followed him there. And then the three of them had sex. And that's when he fell in love with her. And so he's been hanging around supporting her, being supportive of all this because he's secretly in love with her. And now he's trying to have sex with her again. And she's rejecting him. She explains, like, that wasn't me. That was the demon. And he's like, well, then we need to get the demon back inside of you. Yeah. Oh, we should probably say that Roger was the one that hired Conrad in the first place to kill her. Why? I think because of the sex. I don't know. It's a little wonky there. I'm sure that's it. But he hires Conrad to kill her. She ends up killing Conrad. And so so he's like, oh, she's really fucking impressive. I really do love her. <laughs> um, so anyway, so now he wants to have sex with her and she's rejecting him. And she says, basically to fool him, you want to be with the me that was the possessed version? The, that's the one that you were in love with? Then I know how we can do that. And so she takes him to... Tony's office where they find the necklace and she ends up putting it back on to bring the demon back. And while they're talking, he ends up reading all the things that he's done. She ends up attacking him, but ultimately is able to remove the medallion herself. So just like I said, she's <laughs> waiting for this to happen. <laughs> and of course, because they film everything in this room, all of that was caught on tape. Mm -hmm. So she is cleaning up her apartment after Roger is now sent to prison. I don't think he dies, right? He's just sent to prison. I think so. She's cleaning up her apartment with her sister. And she notices at one point that her sister has the same mark on her neck. Mm -hmm. And she's like, hmm, 
I don't know why she's like, hmm, all of this should be obvious by now. (laughs) But apparently it's not. So she gets a job with the rehab place, not the rehab place, the the spa, Spirit Possessions Anonymous, Mm -hmm. uh, with Tony. She works for Tony and she's going to end up running the program as well. And while she's in there late one night after Tony leaves, she ends up conveniently knocking over the records, which also conveniently the first time she was in Tony's office, he said there were in this office. (laughs) He's waiting for her to find the records of that go all the way back to the 80s. So you know what records are going to be in there. Mm -hmm. The records of her mother's possession. Mm Mm-hmm. So she finds the records uh, that uh, that say that her mother was also possessed by this very same demon. And then she gets, like, super pissed. Like, I guess the implication, like, I don't know exactly what the movie is saying here. <laughs> she gets really angry and then it, we see almost like she's inviting the demon back in so she can have vengeance now. And that's how the movie ends. Yeah, because what she discovered is I can control the demon and I can use the demon's powers to my advantage. Yeah. Because earlier she was able to kick the crap out of Roger. Roger because she had that strength. Right. But I'm like, okay, how does finding out that your mom was possessed make you angry, but not finding out that your sister performed the fucking ritual that made you possessed in the first place? How come that doesn't make you angry? Like, it's really disconnected. Yeah, it gets confusing here. I didn't understand who she was mad at or who she wanted to get back at and why. I didn't Right. Get it. Why would finding out your mom was possessed be the thing? It's almost, I, I think the implication is that she was given this demon to keep it away from the mom because the mom didn't go through one of these programs and because she's susceptible to being possessed and it's also genetic that they knew that there was this fuck up of a daughter, Ava, that they could just use her to send the demon to her instead to keep it away from the mom. Maybe, but the movie doesn't really say that. It's just a guess. Yeah. The ending kind of makes the whole movie fall apart. Right. Yeah, kind of, which is, which is really unfortunate. I have written down that, I love the premise, I love the tone, but the plot lets you down, mm-hmm. and it ends up being such an anti-climax, because everything's really obvious, you see it coming from a mile away, but ev- but then on the other hand, on the other side of that coin, the explanation is really muddied and isn't clear at all, mm-hmm. so... It's like the worst of both worlds. You know what's going to happen plot-wise, but even once it's already happened, it's not clear why. <laughs> so it, it you just know it because this is the beat of a story like this, and you exp- oh, you know immediately where it's going to go, which fucking sucks because everything else about this movie is so damned promising, and I really, really like it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It... it Yeah, why would finding out about her mother make her angry after she saw the mark on her sister's neck and wasn't angry? What's the explanation? Did the sister make her mom possess too? Did she do both? Like, it's it's, uh, fucking who knows? Who knows? Yeah, and that's a little bit of a bummer. Yes. Anything else, Kelsey, lightning round stuff? Not really. I think we've pretty much nailed it. I mean, it was... A great idea, and then it just kind of fell apart. Well, like I said, writer, director, editor Jordan Galland came up with a great premise, but not a good story. Mm-hmm. And he should have handed that off to somebody else to write. Because mm-hmm. the movie's 
fairly well directed. It's it's everything about the specific elements of the plot that really lets this movie down. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, what do you think the movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 63. 64 out of 14 reviews, no consensus statement. A Metacritic of 53. So do you think this movie is overrated or underrated? It's pretty much right on target. Right. I was going to give it a 63, so 64 seems perfect. Yeah, I was I was I was actually torn between 60 and 65, so I think 63 is a pretty good compromise there. Mhm. It's a bummer is what it is because there was all that potential. Yes. And I still really like all those things about it. Like which is why I'm not saying don't watch it, but just be prepared to be disappointed by the latter half of the movie. Yes. All right, that is Ava's possessions, thus completing our possession week here on Pod Cemetery. Thank you very much to the Chickapedia for making these recommendations. Yes. What are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week is a double feature. Whoop. It was also a recommendation. So Sammy Sam 6 recommended that we watch The Wicker Man with Midsummer a while ago. To which Chris said we should just do a double feature, and he was worried that I would not be willing to sit through another Nicolas Cage performance. With good reason, I am not looking forward to watching the Nicolas Cage version. Oh, God, I don't know how you can... But... <laughs> he punches ladies in a bear suit. But it is very funny, so... <laughs> It'll be okay. Yeah, I think we'll be fine. And Sam, interestingly, he had also recommended we pair Hereditary and the exorcist when i had to tell him that oh well no unfortunately both of those are already on our lists elsewhere from other recommendations so (laughs) thank you for all the recommendations sam i really appreciate it and i'm really excited to do the wicker man it has been a long time since i've seen the original i've never seen the original yeah it's gonna be fairly new to me because i barely remember it i've seen the nick cage version Many times. And we did live tweet while we watched Midsummer, but we will eventually put it on the show. We will, yes. No worries there. And I totally get why you would want to pair it with The Wicker Man. Makes oh, yeah. perfect sense. Absolutely. Uh, but since we have two Wicker Man movies, let's put those hands together. <laughs> do a double feature. So thank you, Sammy Sam 6. Really appreciate that. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com, or Twitter, at podcemetery. Somebody suggested we do a an Instagram, since that's where all the kids are, so I guess we could probably do one of those. Uh, follow us in your podcatcher of choice. Don't forget to subscribe. Rate and review are huge helps in getting us noticed, so if you haven't done so already, please do. Obviously, the best thing you can do for us there is a five-star written review. Share us with your friends, because that's equally helpful and you know what thanks to each and every one of you for listening in the gd first place we love all of you until next week i've been chris i've been kelsey and this has been pod cemetery but before we go kelsey any last words he is a liar the demon is a liar he will lie to confuse us but he will also mix lies with the truth to attack us The attack is psychological, Damien, and powerful, so don't listen to him. Remember that. Do not listen.
They end up talking about Burke Williams. Dennings. They end up talking about <laughs> Burke Dennings. <laughs> Burke Williams? It's the spa place. That's okay, yeah. All right, go ahead. And he's as he's as as um what's the word? Um as uh, accusing? No. Um not assaulting. Well, first he accuses Carl of being No, I know, but I'm thinking of a word. Okay, what word? Describe more. You pester somebody over and over again. Pet oh, I was about to say pestering. <laughs> it's not assaulting, but it's uh annoying? No. Badgering, hounding, bothering, harassing. Harassing. There Thank you, go. you. Did you think that guy was gay? <laughs> the priest? I guess we have to take it out since he's a real person. No. <laughs> Watch that scene again when you record when you do this. Uh-huh. Because he, he's like sitting at the at the uh piano. Oh, that's Oh, and they love me. He oh, seems yes. uh-huh. he seems super gay. Well, he seems like he's Liberace. Except without the elaborate outfits. So maybe he is. <laughs> oh, I remembered the line. The problem's not with her bed. The problem's in her brain. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on to our next film, Trivial Pursuit, no. Well, hello, Mrs. Chris. Well, hello, Mr. Kelsey. 